This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Pure, Aberdeen's premier independent menswear store. Since 1994, Pure have focused on bringing together the best of exclusive up-and-coming designer labels and contemporary fashion collections. Together with their unmatched customer service and attention to detail, if you're a dedicated follower of fashion, make Pure your first stop. Got a wedding, important business meeting or other special occasion coming up? Check out Pure's made-to-measure service, providing uniquely tailored garments engineered to suit the requirements of every individual. And with delivery available in just four to six weeks, you'll be looking sharper than a cross from Peter Weir in no time. Visit in-store at 411 Union Street or visit online at www.pure-man.com for worldwide delivery. Pure, supporting the Don since Bonthrone. Great slight of foot there. Hello and welcome along to the ABZ Football Podcast, episode number one, a brand new weekly-ish podcast looking at all things Aberdeen Football Club. Now, we aim to cover not just the men's team, but we're also looking to cover as much as we can around what's going on at Pathology Stadium and Cormac Park, including coverage of the women's team, the youth setup, and the community trust. So my name's Gary Scott and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Graham Steele and Gavin Baxter. How are we doing, guys? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, very good. We're glad to have you with us. And in this episode, we're going to have a look at how we think pre-season's gone for the Dons, what we kind of think about the transfer activity to date, what our kind of general hopes are for the season ahead. We've got a couple of guests from the Bal Club and Heckin podcast, Christopher Nunas, to have a look and get a deep dive on our uh, opponents in the upcoming qualifying round two tie of the Europa Conference League. And then to round things off, the main event of the evening, Graham Hunter fresh from his Euro 2020 adventures with La Roca, is going to join us to talk all things Dons, his fanatical love for them, and what he thinks is going to happen this season. So just by way of introduction, guys, Graham, your first game for the Dons. First game was home against Celtic, which with my famous memory being terrible, I've consulted Wikipedia, 22nd of December 2001, where Winter scored a penalty, and then Mackie closed down Rab Douglas. Now, let's remember, Wikipedia is not a factual source of information. Correct. But the AFC website backed it up. <laughs> Gav? Um, I don't remember if this is actually my first game, but my earliest sound memory would be actually the game where you yourself were mascot. So that was a midweek game with Motherwell. Um, and I'm sure you can tell me the date for that. Uh, I don't want to give away such personal information, but yeah, a, a midweek game in uh, November 1992, 93. At home at Motherwell, 2-0 victory for the Dons, Duncan Shearer and Brian Grant, as I recall. Most notable occurrence that night, Gary, absolutely blanking Theo Snelders. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not going to mention that to Theo when we, when we get him on, obviously. Absolutely not. And uh, for myself, I think my first game I can remember was a reserve game um, against Muddle as well, ironically, um, in the wing stand. For those of you who are listening who are old enough to remember the wing stand at Pathology, first full first team game, and this is ridiculous, is that game against Rangers back in 1988. 
what my dad was thinking about taking me to a game like that for my first game, I have no idea. But thank God he did, because uh, I think it's fair to say that that implanted a love for the Dons that has never died since. So first point on the agenda, I guess, for this evening is to have a look at the transfer activities in and out of Pataudry this week. So, Graham, I think you're going to lead us through the ins, uh, sorry, the outs and the re-signed players. Okay, so yeah, I'll just run through uh, the players that left the club. Um, so we've got Ash Taylor, um, signed for Walsall, and we've got Tommy Hoban, signed for Crew. So a couple of basically first-team players there, um, having left Greg Lee, signed for Morecambe, although I have to confess this was his second spell. He spent most of it injured, I'd actually forgotten uh, he'd come back. Shea Logan, uh, he's got TBC, I don't believe he signed for anyone yet. Uh, Bruce Anderson, who from memory, I think he did have a deal on the table, but um, probably formed part of a part of the deal with Jet. Um, I guess Bruce Anderson went to Livingston, Jet coming from Livingston. Then we've got, uh, what do we have? Flo of Canberra, Fraser Hornby, Callum Hendry, three loan signings, all returning to their parent club. And then Ethan Ross, uh, one of the young guys, um, obviously we couldn't agree terms, so I don't think he has signed for anyone. I've seen a few rumours, but I don't think he's actually signed for anyone. Um, and then over and above that, a uh, couple of guys that we re-signed. So Niall McGinn, I say re-signed, extended his deal. Everyone knows what Niall McGinn brings. Um, Gary Woods, who I think we were all in agreement, looked quite handy. Uh, the few games he played towards the end of the season, so I think that's a good... Seems like a good bit of business, whether he's on the bench or pushing for number one. Um, and then finally, we've got Michael Devlin, who I believe has an offer, short-term offer with a view to proving his fitness and then possibly something longer term uh, after that. So a few guys left, uh, a few guys that were in the team, certainly towards the end of the season. So obviously there's a few vacancies that need to be filled. And generally speaking, guys, what's your views on, on the guys that have left and the guys that have re-signed? I would personally say when I look at that list again, I'm not sure there's anyone that I would have kept. A couple maybe for sentimental reasons. Obviously, Shea, he was a pretty good servant for the club, um, seemed to get what playing for Aberdeen was all about. Um, quite like Tommy Hoban, but looking at the list, I'm not so sure that there's there are better players out there or we can replace them. And in terms of the re-signings, Niall again, you know, fair enough. Um we're going to get Gary Woods. I do think is a good bit of business. I, I think we've got a number two if that's what he becomes on the bench. That I don't really have any concerns if he has to step up um, and play every week. And I guess you know, Devlin's not really decided yet, is it? So we'll, we'll maybe cover that if and when he signs something. I have no comment to make on Michael Devlin. So, yeah, I think it, in terms of the players, I, I kind of tend to agree. I look at the list again and I'm not really too concerned about players that have left the club. Tommy Hoban, the early stages of the last season, looked really good. Um, I thought towards the back end of the season, he really started to to, to suffer, looked very, very tired, which is understandable. You know, he played, I think, the guts of 40 games last season, um, which is more than he's probably done in his entire career because of how injury-plagued he's been. But am I overly surprised that the level of club he's got to his, his crew? Probably not, but all the best all the best to Tommy there the rest of the guys I've got no real concerns about I know there's some chat about we're still being interested in Calm Henry although Stephen Glass kind of shot that down earlier in the week I think if we were bringing Henry in he would have to be coming in as a number three or number four choice striker I would think um, think for me um, now I'm again you're right he's a kind of proven quantity one year deal probably on reduced terms not a bad bit of business 
Um, Michael Devlin is the interesting one. There's been a lot of chat about whether he has signed the deal or not. Scott Burns um, was out tweeting earlier in the week that he's actually signed that deal, but for whatever reason, it hasn't been um, hasn't been made public. And there's been no sightings that I've seen of any of the media that came out that's come out of uh, Cormac Park through preseason of Michael Devlin being there. So I don't really know what that means. Um, Gav, I don't know if you've got any views at all about the players who've left. As you kind of said, you know, there's some solid pros that we've had here, but I think we can all agree that at this time, a clear out, you know, some fresh blood, just a different atmosphere, a different set of personnel is what's needed. I do look at some of the players that have left and think we've left three, what, three centre-backs there. I think we're light at centre-half right now. So maybe I'd have kept one of them as for backup, but on the whole... I was really excited about Greg Lee signing last year, but it just didn't work out for injuries. Ash Taylor kind of divides opinion, but you know, I I I personally liked him. Um, Tommy Hoban, as you say, started off really well, and I do wonder if, as you just mentioned, he played. I think at the beginning of the year, I remember like hearing McInnes saying that he was going to play one game a week, maybe, and then that changed very quickly to he was playing every game, and I do just wonder if that's what caught up with him at the end of the year. Um, but yeah, I just I think it was for the best. And the three lone guys, none of them really did anything for me. Yeah, so yeah, I, no major losses there as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree. So I guess the, the the more exciting thing for any fan in in preseason is also looking at the players who decided to, to come in and join the club. And I think Gav, you're going to run through the list just now for anyone that's not familiar. Obviously, we signed Scott Brown from Celtic, the the captain of the team that won nine titles in a row. We, uh, we all have our opinion on that one, but I think in the most part, we can all agree that it's a pretty significant piece of business by the club and we're all very interested in how he's going to do. Declan Gallagher come in from Motherwell. He's a guy, we don't need to go into his personal problems, but he's a guy who's been on the rise for the last few years. Coming into the peak of his career, if it's to be believed, he had interest in the championship and he's decided to come to Aberdeen, so excited to see him. And then... Obviously, we've got Jet, as Steele alluded to, a guy that's you know, played for Arsenal, he's played for Bristol City, a pretty nomadic career in the last few years, but he's a guy that we saw his quality, especially against Aberdeen for Livingston last year. And then, yeah, we're going into kind of more unknown territory, like Jack Gurr, who's come from the Atlanta United second string team, 25 years old, um, signed on a one-year deal, um, made his Atlanta United debut in April, I got worked for Glass, so someone clearly Glass knows, clearly rates. And then we've got Teddy Jenks, who's coming from Brighton and Hove Albion, um, capped by England at under 16 and under 17 level. Um, a bit of a strange one in that he has come in at a time that Hibs have set up this strategic link with Brighton. And yet in that time, Brighton have loaned no one to Hibs, but one player to us, and I think one player to Hearts as well. Um, but yeah, talked about very highly. In fitting with the profile for an Aberdeen signing, I think he's recovered from a serious knee injury. So we'll see how that plays out. To be honest, I don't really know a huge amount about him. I think he's an attacking midfield player, hopefully someone that can link up with the forwards, link up with the midfield. But yeah, he's one to watch, I think. And lastly, he's the guy that we're excited to see. We've seen him on the social media, embracing the greyness of Aberdeen. I'm sure people are going to be flocking to Aberdeen from the uh, Houston area on the basis of what they've seen on Christian Ramirez's social media lately. America, internationalist, two caps, um, one goal. And 
you know, he's played for Minnesota, he's played for LAFC, and Houston got a record of 35 goals in 104 games. And yeah, I think we can all agree that we're very excited to see what he's going to bring to the team. He's highly rated by those that have watched him, and clearly Stephen Glass sees him as an important player, both on and off the pitch. Yeah, no, thanks, Gaff. So I think it's, it's probably been a relatively interesting set of incomings um, so far. I, I personally think we're probably still a few short in terms of what we need in the overall squad. I mean, Gavin, you touched on it, Scott Brown. I don't think we need to go into an in-depth piece on his career. We all know what Scott Brown brings as a, as a player. Um, I think the club maybe did a good thing in announcing the Scott Brown deal kind of early at the back end of last season, probably with the view that, well, A, they had to, we had to know who Stephen Glass is assistant managers, et cetera, were going to be. But I probably suspect they knew there might be a mixed response, shall we say, to to the signing of Brown. And I think if nothing else, a bit of time has allowed that to dissipate. And I think now more people have got used to the idea that he's coming. And I think for me, I I think there feels a bit more positivity about it now as well. I think with a guy like Scott Brown, it would have been very easy for him to have taken the the one-year deal he had on offer at Celtic stay in a comfortable environment for him, probably get a gig coaching one of their uh, one of their youth setup teams, for example. So I think it probably says a lot about the guy that he's actually chosen to to give that up and, and, and make the move up to Aberdeen. And by all accounts, you know, the rumor mill indicates that he's he's buying a house up here. So hopefully he's actually going to be kind of properly basing himself up in Aberdeen. And I think that's quite a positive move, hopefully. So yeah, Declan Gallagher, a guy who I don't think we need to go into a huge amount of detail on, joining in from Motherwell. He's obviously had a lot of experience now playing in the Scottish system, coming through with Livingston and then at Motherwell. I think we all know what Declan Gallagher is going to bring to the team. So I don't know if anyone's got anything they really want to, to comment on there. But for me, I think the the, the interesting ones are probably in the in, in the upfront positions. I think with J. Emmanuel Thomas, I'm actually warming more to the J. Emmanuel Thomas signing the closer we get to the start of the season. And I don't know if that's purely based on clearly the the positive influence the guy has in the changing room. You can see that through like various different social media postings, et cetera. And the fact that I think he genuinely seems to be quite excited about being here. Yeah, no, I would agree. I've picked that up as well. It's um, obviously it's easy to put out a post and everyone can take it as they like, but he genuinely does seem quite chuffed to be here. Obviously, he's going to know about Aberdeen a little bit anyway because he's, he's played for Livingston last season. Um, but I think it's always quite encouraging when you get a guy who genuinely looks happy to sign for your club, which hasn't always been the case, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with previous signings. Um, and theoretically, he's got a slightly higher calibre of player around him. Uh, once Glass has finished his rebuilding job, um, did a decent enough job for Livy last year. So I'm hoping he can do the, you know, at least the same, if not slightly better for us. And yeah, I think the big one, obviously, Christian Ramirez coming in, being given the number nine jersey. No pressure, Christian, at all. His his history is, is an interesting one, I think. Um, you, you, say no, you say no pressure. You're replacing Curtis Main. There literally is no pressure. <laughs> That's Curtis Main, who scored for St. Mirren in a, in a 1-0 victory last night against Dunfermline, I think. so. And good luck to you with the rest of your season, Dunfermline Athletic. <laughs> yeah, Christian Ramirez. Let's let's go back to him just just really quickly. And uh, and other podcasts out there, and other people have looked a bit more in detail on Christian Ramirez. So we're not going to cover all ground here. I think the one concern I have with the Ramirez signing is that while he's got a kind of one in three ish goal scoring ratio in the MLS, the majority of that seems to have happened at Minnesota United, which is 
two clubs hence his record at LA and then at Houston's not been particularly sparkling but by all accounts it could be because he's been played in a slightly different role um, certainly a lot of the, 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 the feedback and the information out there appears to be that he's a guy who's a hard working centre forward not afraid to take the ball on the feet but can also get himself in around the penalty box as well seems to be well known to Alan Russell um, and obviously I think there was a lot of chat that Stephen Glass had attempted to sign him last season when uh, Stephen Glass was in charge of Atlanta United in, on an interim basis so an interesting move it's one of those ones that I think Aberdeen fans are never happy with anything that goes on sometimes with the club you hear everybody bemoaning the fact that for the last 10 years we've consistently been trawling the lower leagues of England to try and find players then we do something completely outside the box as far as Aberdeen are concerned and we bring in a guy you know like I say from Houston really unknown to us all and there are still people out there kind of moaning about it and hey the proof's going to be in the pudding I guess we're going to see what happens when he gets um, gets his boots strapped on and he starts uh, starts playing games for us in the Scottish League. One thing I would say about his boots, blackout boots. So for that alone, he gets 10 out of 10. I didn't notice that. Had not noticed that. Um, yeah, like you say, let's see, let's see what he does. Let's see when he's got three against Hecken. We'll all be singing three cheers for Ramirez. The one elephant in the room we've not really talked about is, is Lewis Ferguson. Right at the back end of, of the season, obviously, um, Lewis Ferguson hands in a transfer request after the Dons have... Uh, rejected an initial offer from from Watford, we believe. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think it's likely we're going to have Lewis Ferguson still in an Aberdeen shirt come the end of the transfer window? My impression is that Lewis may well play the Europa Conference qualifiers, but I do believe that when the window slams shut, he will not be an Aberdeen player. The transfer request, you know, whether that's an agent in his ear, whether that's interest that's coming from England, that he's just now thinking to himself, I've had three years at Aberdeen. This is the next step for me. But yeah, my overall impression, I think Ferguson has served his time at Aberdeen and I think he will be, yeah, I think he'll be a player in England uh, come August time. And hopefully if that was to happen, we can just make the, the kind of money we hope that we can make and go on to use that to either recover COVID losses or to then reinvest that further in the squad because he will be a big loss. I think I'd have to agree. I'd be disappointed to see him go. Um, I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 at the moment and I'm only 50-50 because obviously I handed in the transfer request but in terms of offers, speculation you know, uh, pages in the paper um, seems to have died down a little bit obviously there's plenty of time left before the, the transfer window closes but I feel what it'll boil down to is yeah, with everything that's going on uh, financially if someone is really going to come in with some of the numbers that have been um, floated around I'm not so sure we could afford to turn it down and actually I would wonder although it's detrimental to your starting 11 would it really be a good idea to turn it down and this might be an opportunity to maybe just safeguard the future of the club a little bit and maybe get us ahead of our recovery plan I guess it's a bit of a catch to a two to a certain extent for the club here because if you look if you're the club and you look at it and you go well we sold you know McKenna and we sold Cosgrove last season for you know Reports will vary between two and three million a piece. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Birmingham once again for uh, paying cash money for Sam Cosgrove. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Um, but if you're the club and you look at that and you go, well, if we've got two to three million in for each of those players, in my mind, Lewis Ferguson's a better player than each of them. So, so that that sets a, a benchmark in our minds about how much we should be looking for. Um, I'm loath to be giving out advice to professional footballers, but I'm going to do it right now. 
Lewis Ferguson, you need to get yourself a better agent, mate, because for your agent to come out after the the the, the offer from Watford rejected and kind of give it all, oh, there was an agreement that we would do this and we would do that. Listen, if it ain't in the contract that there's a release clause with a minimum fee on it, it's not worth, you know, the paper, well, it's not worth the paper it's not written on, clearly. The club's got a valuation that they're going to stick to. I think they're right to do so. I think from what we've all heard, our COVID losses for, for last year have been effectively covered through a combination of the uh, the insurance money, through the sales of Cosgrove and McKenna, which is really galling because in a normal season, that would have been a, a healthy amount of profit stuck on the bottom line that would have then been able to be invested in the squad. But it is what it is. You know, I don't think we're necessarily in a place where we're desperate to sell, especially because, you know, just as we're recording this, I've, I've noticed that the club have come out to, to indicate that they're hopeful that they'll get at least 5,000 in for the game against Hecken. They're hopeful then that obviously we'll get maybe the same amount in for the Dundee United game. And then, fingers crossed, we're moving quite rapidly towards a beyond level zero, whatever the hell that means, position. And, and, and we might be in a place where we have decent numbers of supporters back in the ground, back in corporate hospitality, etc. So hopefully our financial position doesn't look quite so bad going forward. And therefore, again, I think the balance of power sits with the club here. Yeah, that's all fair enough. Uh, it's obviously you not being a fly in the wall. Um, just because you've handed in a transfer request, it's not always that easy to figure out who drove that decision. As a young man, who may or may not be getting bad advice, or he may be absolutely certain on what he's doing. It's it's, it's him running the show, um, and we'll just have to watch this space, I suppose. Um, I think it's it's relevant to why I'm bringing this up from the Here We Go podcast. They have their uh, extensive list of Aberdeen contracts at Linux Fair. Lewis Ferguson is still contracted with us until 2024. And if you look at the market, I mean, I've seen fees being banded about for Ryan Porteous and the left back at Hibs. What's his name? Uh, Doig. Doig, like three and a half million. What, for Porteous? For, well, for Doig at least. I think I've seen millions quoted for Porteous, which, you know, I'm assuming that means like jelly babies or something like that. Not, yeah, that's not, people not in cash. That's people um, indulging in a healthy set of LSD. <laughs> Uh, like, I don't know about you guys but, like since Ferguson's been here he's been like the one guy I've seen where I'm like quite convinced that he's going to go and play in England and play on a consistent basis in the Premiership the market speaks to me that he is worth at the least I don't know five million I would tend to agree with that I mean the other point I would make as well is is Watford really the best club for a Lewis Ferguson type player to move to you know, you know they're just coming back up from the Championship you know they're going to be trying you would imagine um to to, to stay up and, and make a big fist of that it's quite a big step for them to decide to take a guy like ferguson and put him straight into their their first 11 it might not be a great move from from a developmental perspective and for him he might be better looking at the the john mcginn type um model or the kenny mclean model uh, moving to a, a decent top end of the table championship team with real hopes of making it into the premier league but becoming a critical part of their first 11 and then making the step up with the team and getting a place in there. But if you look at the John McGinn's of this world, is Lewis Ferguson going to be as good as a John McGinn? I think there's a lot of potential there for him to do so. And you look at some of the numbers that John McGinn has been talked about being sold for. Now, I know that as Aberdeen, we're never going to be able to attract that sort of cash, but I feel that there's a premium market potentially in there for Scottish players coming up soon because of Brexit, because of the potential difficulties in bringing European players and players from outside of Europe into the country, there's potentially a premium in the market for a good young British talent. And we should be exploiting that. And as, as Gavin points out, he's under contract till 2024. So 
you know, the, the balance power definitely sits with us. Yeah, it's a relevant point. I think there's also been chat of West Ham. And I get I get the point you're making, but again, we don't want to go down the route of like offering unsolicited advice to footballers. If the money is right at either West Ham or Watford, Lewis, I mean, go for it. Absolutely. No, 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 definitely. Don't, don't listen to us. What do we know? That's how to look at the, the, the ins and the outs. Pre-season this year has been pretty hard to judge. Well, I mean, at the time of recording, we've had, what, one closed doors friendly with Inverness Cali Thistle? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I was thinking we played Bucky Thistle, but I think that was probably like the development team in the Cup, in the Avenger Cup. So, yeah, you're right. The first team, if you like, has had one closed door friendly. And I'm pretty sure, actually, he basically fielded a team each half. So it's not even like we got to see or we got the result of what did his first 11 get over 90 minutes. So uh, it's probably the hardest it's ever going to be. Normally when you get a new manager, you still get the opportunity to go and watch the games. Uh, we've not had that luxury. Yeah, and not even the fact that we've not had games for us to be able to see, that there's been no footage as far as I'm aware that's come out even from the club's official channels with regards to the Marines Cali game. Obviously, I think we've got um, a couple of like a couple of games coming up at Cormac Park. I think we've got two games in one day um, coming up on Friday, I think. Again, there doesn't appear to be any indication that we'll get any sort of visibility about you know what those games look like, other than I guess a match report at the back end. So it's, it's even when you look at the 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 reporting that came out, there was no sort of guidance about you know what sort of system we might be looking at, anything like that there. So it's kind of difficult to judge. And I guess you know at the time of recording, we're now well we're a week away to all intents and purposes from our qualifying round two tie against the uh, Balclub and Hecken. And how are you guys feeling about that right now? You know what? I was feeling a lot better about this before we did our research on Hecken. So maybe this is like an example that ignorance is in fact bliss. I would probably agree with that. Um, I'm probably a bit more nervous than I would be under, you know, in a sort of over the last couple of years when obviously you've got the same, same management team, probably nucleus of the same players. You have an idea of what we can and can't do and what we can grind out. Um, whereas this time... I don't even think, you know, we've got holes to fill in the squad. Um, we've got the new management team. We've got plenty of new players, some of them new to the country um, as well. It just feels like we've we've got everything that you wouldn't want for a pre-season. Um, and then you have what's kind of a friendly, but obviously an important friendly. Um, so I think we've got some decent players. Um, I'm just not sure how much time they've actually had to spend together on the pitch and how much time Glass and his management team have actually had with these guys to try and build a, you know, an understanding of how they want us to play. Yeah, and I think this will come up in more detail with our conversation with Christopher and Jonas from the, the Hecken podcast, but the thing I gathered from the research that we did there, there's a lot of international experience in that team. And there's a lot of players that have played in leagues across, the, across Europe you know, you've got guys who played in Holland, in Italy, uh, Spain, England. There's a lot of quality in this team, and it's touched upon there. Like, I think from a lazy perspective, we'd maybe think to ourselves, Stavanger last year, this might be a team of a relative similar quality. It appears to me that this Hecken team are going to be a significantly tougher challenge than Stavanger posed to us. Yeah, I think there's definitely a possibility of that, and I think we'll cover the, the Hecken guys, I think, coming up. Um, later on, later on in the show, when we, we speak to Christopher and Jonas, I think for me the big concern is a how match ready are we when we go into this tie, um, with with only having three ish friendly matches um, arranged ahead of the ahead of the tie. 
that to me feels like we could go in a little bit undercooked. I'm not entirely sure from my perspective, from my taste, we're definitely not in a position where we have a, a, a complete squad yet. I think we're looking still light in the forward areas. I think the left back area, I think that, I think there's a lot of focus on Jack McKenzie this year. He's clearly been given the number three shirt. That's a massive vote of confidence for the kid. Um, hopefully he rises to that, but there's not really any other coverage in the squad at left back. Center half, I think, looks like a real worry area for us, notwithstanding the fact we've signed Declan Gallagher. You've only really got Andy Considine and Ross McCrory, I guess, a push you could play in that position. Um, center midfield were overloaded, again, with central midfielders, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of dynamic Stephen Glass decides to try and adopt in that area. And up front, I think we're still light as well, at least maybe one striker. And I'd love to see another winger or two or a creative type in there. Um, I, I, I think we cannot cannot go into this season solely relying on Ryan Hedges again. So, I mean, clearly none of us have like, you know, a crystal ball about that. But if you're looking at the squad that we have at this current moment, what formation do we think we're actually going to line up with in, in a week's time against Hecken? Not a Scooby-Doo. I mean, I guess like at the current moment, like three at the back, this kind of adaptive 3-4-3 system seems to be the in vogue, the new 4-2-3-1. We're thinking maybe Ross McCrory's got the number two shirt, going to be on the right side of a back three. Uh, I mean, Calvin Ramsey, I think, impressed everybody towards the back end of the season when he came in, particularly for his um, ability to get forward. I thought he looked really, in the Celtic game at home, in particular, I thought he looked excellent getting up the wing. Um, Jack McKenzie, I think, is a fairly attacking left-sided defender as well. Jack Gurr, all of the indications we've had is that he is a player who likes to get forward. If you, I mean, I know that you're not going to see YouTube videos of a player defending um, because who really wants to watch that? But all of his YouTube highlight reels appear to show him going forward. So he looks like he's that kind of player. So I wonder if we may be looking at a kind of 3 5 2 type 3-4-3 type hybrid system going on at least it looks as though we're putting this season building blocks in place where we're trying to put the right players in the right slots rather than trying to you know fit round pegs into square holes yeah I think that's a good point I mean obviously you manager new ideas new players but you're kind of assuming he's getting the players he wants to fill the positions he wants them to play in rather than yeah, maybe in seasons gone by, we've ended up with a squad and someone's decided we're going to do something different and these guys can't really adapt to that. Um, this is a sort of clean slate, if you like, so you've got to assume that all these guys are getting signed for a position because that's where they play and that's where they play well. So I guess over the over the, the summer period again, I think the other significant piece I think has come out from the club, apart from obviously the fact that Dave Cormack loves Rowies and loves bacon sliced between Rowies, has he not proposed this as like part of the delicacies to be seen at Pataudry upon the return? If they haven't, they're missing a trick. That's that's all I can say. Um, obviously, is the appointment of um, Stephen Gunn now as the kind of director of football operations. And there was quite an interesting uh, Q&A session that the club ran uh, that was broadcast on the YouTube channels with, uh, with the two Stevens, Glass and Gunn. And, you know, what did you guys make of that? What did you kind of take away from that? I think the main takeaway from myself was that we're talking here as fans and we want to see signings come in. That's It's an exciting part of the summer. But the clear indication that Stephen Gunn especially offered up was that this idea that if there are kids in the youth system that they think can come in and do a job, 
they're not just going to sign players for a year or two who are potentially going to block that that player's pathway. And to me, that was like a very, very clear indication that the club is now believing in youth is going to properly create this kind of, as we say, this pathway from the youth setup into the first team, which I hope is reflecting the fact that we're going to have this kind of system within the youth teams that is similar to what is going on in the first team so that when that kid comes into the team, it's not going to be like a completely alien experience. It's going to be very familiar to what they've already dealt with. And this, and in that way, the transition should be seamless. That was my main takeaway from it. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And also kind of shows the beginnings of, I don't know if it's sort of a more holistic view of how the club should operate, um, you know, whether it was true or not. Because I think myself, I don't think I'm alone, thought obviously the previous manager controlled quite a lot of the aspects of the club. And that's good when he's there. But obviously if he goes and you're not really left with a blueprint that the new, you know, the new guy or the younger, the younger players can follow, you're kind of always in this cycle of starting over every couple of seasons. So it looked like this was the beginnings of some sort of framework in place that the manager will always be in an important position. But if the manager moves on, then they will be recruiting a manager and players to fit with the, the sort of the style and the setup that we have. So hopefully we're we're moving away from this ripping up and starting again every time a manager goes. And it's just a case of, okay, well, this is how we do it. Slot guys in, you're in the youth team, but you're going to step up for a couple of games. You know what you're doing because it's just basically more pressure and it's the way you've been doing it before. Um, I think all these things are quite positive maybe we've been lacking a direction in terms of where we're going to go and what we're supposed to look like you know as a club and on the pitch um it's obviously going to take time and I think it's probably stalled given the last year 15 months um that we've had you know off the pitch um so yeah I think it's quite exciting um it's a new season I'm obviously optimistic as these podcasts go on that might change but uh it's exciting to see, I think, uh, and I really hope this is the beginnings of a new sort of era in terms of what Aberdeen wants to look like on the pitch. Yeah, I think I, I'd quite like to circle back on that a little bit because I think you're, I think Graham, you hit the nail on the head a little bit as far as I, how I see things just now. That I think towards the back end of the Derek McInnes era, I think it was very clear that the club kind of reached a bit of a crossroads. And it was one of those moments of, right, well, what way are we now going to turn? If we're all honest, I think Derek McInnes' days at Aberdeen were probably numbered from the moment that Dave Cormack took overall charge at the club. And when we unveiled that philosophy document uh, about 18 months ago, whenever it was. Because to me, it felt at the time that that was a bit of like laying down a gauntlet to the manager to say, this is what we expect. And you either kind of adapt or die was, was, was kind of, how that appeared to me. And I hate using kind of management talk in a sort of context about football, but it felt to me that we were very much trying to move ourselves away from a model, like you say, Graham, where the manager is the, the all powerful being within the football club. And I think that, that, that setup worked historically. I think it worked under Derek McInnes for a period of time where he had full control over everything to do with the football setup. But I think we started to see the limitations of that over the last few seasons where clearly we were just trying to patch up squads on a yearly basis to try and just get us through. There never appeared to be any real proper long-term thinking about what we were doing as a football club. And so I'm refreshed. We've all spoken about this before. 
that we are taking a different tact. It feels like a different tact. And I, I hope, and this probably will not be the first time that I talk about Norwich City on this podcast. I think there's a lot of similarities between Aberdeen and Norwich City as football clubs. The Norwich City model they've adopted in the last few seasons is absolutely the model I think that a modern football club should be looking at, you know, having a, a clear philosophy about how you're going to how you're going to play, a clear philosophy about how your youth setups are going to play, a clear philosophy around you know, do you're going to try and invest in young players, you're going to try and develop them, get some success out of them, and then probably try and sell them on for profit and reinvest that back into your football club again. But with the idea always being that there's a clear philosophy at the heart of the club that when you're then having to recruit a new manager because previous manager has had to go because results weren't good enough or has moved on because results were so good, he gets poached by a, 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 a bigger fish, that you're not necessarily having to rip up the whole club root and branch to try and find a new manager come in. You're trying to find a coach or a manager who embraces the philosophy that the club's got and it's going to work with that rather than coming in and try to just tear the whole thing back up again. So for me, from that perspective, I think it's a really refreshing move. I think what it probably means is that it's a season of transition. I like the fact that Gunn and Glass were very adamant that they're not going to hand out now a three-year deal to a guy to come in and fill a slot in the squad if they feel that maybe there's a youth player coming through the system in the next two years who can take that slot. So they might just give somebody a two-year deal. Now, I, I don't think it was meant to be aimed at any particular players in the squad at the moment, but it felt to me like it was a bit of a an aim at like a guy like a Funzo Ojo type. We'll see what Funzo Ojo brings this season. I, I suspect the guys coming back for pre-season were given a, a clean slate to begin with. But a guy like Ojo coming up from the English lower leagues, is that a guy you really want to be handing a three-year deal to if it's blocking the pathway of a young midfielder coming through the setup? Probably not. Um I think the club at least are hopefully being honest about it this year. And I think that's what they need to do is I'd like to see them be a bit more honest about this might be a season of transition and, and set that expectation level within the support. If you think back to last year, like Norwich, you know, had a very difficult year in the premiership and all the noise was that they should have invested more money or they should be thinking about re- replacing the manager or changing the style. And all the time, Stuart Weber, who's the, I guess, Stephen Gunn, in, uh, in Norwich City terms, at any available chance you could get was out saying, we're not going to change our philosophy. We're sticking with this idea. And the only time they would ever consider replacing the manager or replacing a player is when they see that philosophy is being veered away from. Over the last few years, like it's been a very vocal um, portion of the Aberdeen sport who have clearly wanted McInnes to go. And my Twitter feed has been full of people saying, we'll take those two years of transition if that means something better will come in the long run. I guess what we're saying, and we've given ourselves a platform here, and maybe, who knows, maybe in three months' time, things are going badly and we'll be equally as bad as, you know, fucking Arsenal fan TV. But we need as supporters to back this project. And I don't like using that word project when it comes to football, but I think that's what we are in right now. We're in this transitional phase, as you say. If we're going to give young players a chance, naturally, the results are going to fluctuate but we just need to stick with it as long as we can see on the pitch that this philosophy the club have talked about. And as you say, I think the club need to be strong, they need to be vocal from above Stephen Glass. That's, I'm talking about Stephen Gunn, talking about Dave Cormack. They all need to be so strong in their support of what we're doing this year. Otherwise, because we've seen it in um, 
in Scotland and in England, you know, I'm thinking about Kilmarnock appointing the guy, Alessio, was it? Yeah. When Scottish clubs take that kind of like, you know, out of the box thinking, the vultures in the Scottish press are there and they're waiting for you to fuck up. The club needs to be so strong in this next two years in our support. And that equally goes to the support as well. Yeah, I think all I would add to that is I think the club has to define what it is they're trying to achieve. And by that time, it's all very well, the club saying, out, you know, we're in a period of transition and we'll support the manager. But if the club doesn't say what the end game is, you know, there's nothing to be judged against. So if they come out and say, we're going to play it a certain way and we're going to win a cup, for example, obvious targets that when we're watching the stands, we, we can see, oh yeah, we're we're playing that way. This is all going the right way. Or hang on, we're not doing anything like what they said we were doing. Where are we going to end up here? So I think if the club spells it out, what they're going for, and you're right, for a period of time, obviously has to stick to their guns. Uh, I think people will buy into that, but it, it has to be clear and it has to be defined. In my opinion, words like project and transition, you know, are great. Don't always like use them. The football club, but they're easy to use. Um, but someone needs to just put their neck on the line and say, categorically, this is what we're after. And then, you know, if we start to see us moving towards that, I think people will realise it's going to take time because you can see the progress. Yeah, no, I agree. So after appealing for realism and and, and trying to have a, an element of rationalism about how the season looks, what are our aspirations? What are our hopes for this season? I remember back when Jimmy Caldwell was manager and it was held up as an achievement if Aberdeen got in the top six. That's not an achievement to me. But on the whole... I, as we just said, I want to see signs that I can just categorically say when I watch Aberdeen play that I see there's a philosophy in work here. And I hope that involves attacking football. I hope it involves keeping the ball on the deck. You know, we've spoken with Graham Hunter and he's made this point about the McInnes teams. I don't want our players to be afraid of the ball. I want our players to be brave. And I, when I say brave, I don't mean throwing themselves into ridiculous tackles or getting into fights for the sake of it. I want us to play Rangers and Celtic and believe in what we can do. And if that means taking the ball into feet and not just immediately getting it as far away from our goal as possible, that to me will be a sign of progress. At the same time, I will temper that. I want us to continue being competitive. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I guess between the three of us, we have different views of what is attacking or quote-unquote how should football be played. The results are the most important thing. Uh, in my opinion, uh, what I would tell for this season if we saw signs that we had a team, you know, so a bit of pace, a bit of energy, don't get pushed around. Um, and you're right, are are going to make mistakes because they're taking the ball into feet in maybe areas that we're not used to seeing and have a team player, you know, take a touch or whatever. But if you persevere with it and the team grows in confidence, play your way out of trouble rather than, you know, how many times do we, we're under the cosh the ball breaks the defender in space and the first thing he does is give it back to the opposition and then obviously there's another attack you're good to see someone in that situation say right that's fine I can pick a pass the other guy can pick a pass you know before you know it maybe you've played your way into the final third um, and then you can turn the turn the tables a little so yeah a team that doesn't panic um, and a team that we can enjoy watching with a caveat that hopefully the results will follow they might not be there instantly but we can, A, get back to the project and B, come out with there going, right, 
maybe it wasn't our day today, but I enjoyed that. I'm looking forward to next week because we're a little unlucky today. There's definitely, you know, signs there. Yeah, it's quite funny, actually, because you look at even just now for people listening in, you'll start to see the, the, the personalities of the three of us start to come out. Uh, I think, Gavin, you're, you're definitely a pragmatist as far as this goes. Graham is most definitely in the resultista box at the moment. The result was, is king. I was just going to say, has Steele just identified as more like a Neil Warnock than a Pep Guardiola? I think he might have done. Or, <sighs> Tim Sherwood, it's all going 4-4. Four, four, I want two. any reference to me being like Neil Warnock cut out. <laughs> or I'm releasing my own rival podcast to besmirch you both. <laughs> and I'm probably the romantic, I imagine, about football with the three of us. Heart for me says, if we don't win the treble, it's been a waste of time. Um, head says, I don't know, I think anything. Oh, I mean, oh, I mean the Mark McGee days, that, that killed that idea for me. <laughs> you know, I, I think with the budget we have available to us, finishing anywhere outside the top, you know, four or five is is a disappointing season. Ideally, give the Scottish Cup a right good go. Um, that's the one we all want. I know it's really cliche to say it, but that's the one we all want. I'd love to see us go for a, a proper go at that. But I guess, hey, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see where we go. So that's what we think about the tie with Balkluv and Hecken. But really, what do we know about the Swedish First Division? Not very much. What do we know about Balkluv and Hecken? They play in Gothenburg and they wear black and yellow. And Martin Olsen plays for them. So we decided the best way to get the lowdown on these guys is probably to speak to a couple of Swedes who know what they're talking about. So we contacted Christopher and Jonas from the Balkluv and Hecken podcast, and we got the lowdown on our qualifying round two opponents. Good evening to Chris and to Jonas from the, and I believe this is the literal translation, a podcast about Balkluv and Hecken. Yeah. Excellent. So hi guys, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um, we're going to have a bit of a look, I guess, at our upcoming qualifying round two tie in the Europa Conference League. And I guess the first question that is really relevant is, what the hell is a Europa Conference League? We don't know, actually. That was one of our questions for you guys. What do we think, what do we think about it? To be honest, I genuinely, for a long time, I thought this was some kind of like weird small team, small country playoff round to get into the proper Europa League. And that turns out it's actually a whole different competition. Yeah. I will confess, I thought it was a rebranding. I didn't realise anything had changed until we were getting set up for this. And then I had a wee look at it and thought, oh, this is not what I was expecting. Um, they've changed the format entirely. Not too sure what to expect out of this uh, as the season goes on. But there, there is some big clubs uh, from the, the bigger leagues, uh, though. Yeah. Uh, like the Italian league and some English. So, yeah. Well, well, that's the thing. Like England's representative is Spurs. So that makes me think even more that it can't really be that big, big a deal, can it? <laughs> I just can't understand why if you decide, you know what, we need a third tournament. Why not just bring the cup winners cup back? Yeah, that would be, that would be best. But how do you feel about the money? Is there money? Yeah, for us <laughs> yeah. there is, <laughs> but that's probably the the most uh, the, the the big difference between uh, our team and yours team, and uh, we're happy about the money. We think it's big money, uh, bigger than we thought from the beginning, but maybe that's not a big thing for you. I think it's definitely a big thing for us, um, especially with what's happened for the last twelve months. Um, obviously, just revenues for the club, but for all clubs, have obviously been slashed so badly. And we've been quite fortunate because I think we've 
basically covered our losses through selling a couple of big assets um, in the last 12 months. But yeah, I think the cash is going to be the king for us here. If, and if we can go into the a bit further into the, the, the tournament than we have done in previous seasons in the Europa League, that would be good. But whether that remains to be seen, I think without us getting too ahead of ourselves and talking about the rest of what we're going to talk about here in the next uh, few minutes, I personally think this is probably one of the worst draws we could have got um, at, at this particular stage in the tournament, but we can kind of, we can go into that in, in, a, in a few more minutes, I guess. So, um, yeah, I guess, uh, Graham, Gav, have you got any kind of questions for the guys? I guess first and foremost, we would just say that the thing that I've noticed about Hecken that kind of draws as a parallel between ourselves and your club is that recently you had a, a, a change in manager gone from a guy that seems to have had pretty successful spell and then this season started and it's just gone very wrong and it appears that it was a mutual decision taken to for him to leave I think he's gone to Odense now yeah exactly and now you've brought in the ex-Norwegian manager um how are you feeling about your manager leaving and what are you thinking about the, the new man that's come in we think um it's probably for the best uh what we've heard uh, it's uh, Andreas, who uh, who uh, was the coach before, he he had us for what is it, Jonas? Is, is it three, four years? Four, I think. Four years. Four, yeah. And before that, we got another another coach that we had only for one year, and before that, we had a coach for nine years. And I like the thing that you you have the same for a couple of years, and 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 everything is. Is is nice about that. I like that, and I think the new manager is is what we need. He's more like a what do you say, like a happy guy, like a he's a warm warm guy that I think he can make a change. I hope so. Yeah, uh, they were kind of stuck uh, with uh, Andreas. Uh, it felt like, um, yeah. So so probably for the best. For everyone, from my understanding, I think you guys have only had a couple of games now with the new manager in charge. Have you seen much of a change in philosophy and style? Uh, the new manager had his first game now in um, in the league uh, this weekend, and uh, yeah, we played. I don't know if if it was because of the players that were available, or if it's uh, or if it's the style they're gonna keep playing but it was more kind of a 442 uh, play style before we had played a lot 4231 or 433 uh, so uh, that was the big change um, you could see and maybe uh, they pressed a bit higher also now uh, when they had a chance uh. and the big difference the big difference was that we won yeah <laughs> but yeah that was the big difference and then i'm happy I mean, that's a good result for the weekend. I mean, you beat AIK 2-1. I watched a little bit of the highlights and it looked to me that there was a lot of a lot of pace on the wings. Yeah. Um, and and that, to me looked, that to me looked like a big threat area, I think, for, for Aberdeen in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, it was a lot of, lot of, lot of speed uh, in the offense. And uh, in the second half, they were using the speed and ran... Uh, uh, yeah, you saw, you saw the goal, uh, the second goal, when he just... Uh, yeah, didn't have a chance. Yeah, he fairly put the afterburners on, as we would say, and um, <clears throat> took the <laughs> took the left back out of the game completely. It was it was a nice finish. Um, so after the restart, then you've got one win under your belts. You think you've got another couple of games before you play us. So there must be a lot of, I guess, optimism within the Hecken 
camp about what you can do against Aberdeen in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, we hope so. Uh, we get a we get a difficult uh, difficult game against uh, Kalmar on Monday, and it's it's always difficult to play against them. And then we get another game before that. Uh, it's Norrköping uh, away, and that that is also a very hard game for us. So, yeah, we'll see uh, when we meet uh, Aberdeen. But it feels like it's a positive atmosphere within the in the squad now uh, with the new coach. Uh, like Christopher said earlier, he's he's a bit warmer. Uh, our last coach was very good uh, and very professional, but maybe wasn't like with the players as warm as as this uh, this uh, manager is. So it feels like the players uh, wanted something, someone like that. Yeah, and before uh, I think that the teams that uh, Per Matias have had before, uh, they have done some ballet and uh, theater and everything like uh, outside of the of the training. And uh, he's yeah, that kind of speaks for itself. What what kind of coach he is? For those of us uh, in the Aberdeen end of these games, what players in the Hacking team are we are we looking out for? I can see. The most notable name probably for us in the UK would be Martin Olsen, the former Norwich, Blackburn and Sweden international. But who else do you guys got that, you know, who are your danger men? Who's going to be the one that's going to dictate the game? Uh, our, our key player is uh, Erik Friberg, uh, number eight, uh, central midfielder, has uh, played in Bologna and uh, in Seattle in the uh, US. Uh, he's very important. He was uh, injured a lot of the games uh, in the in the spring here, and uh, yeah, our uh, our win percentage uh, is uh, not uh, so good uh, without him. So he's a he's a real key player for for this Hecken uh, team. Then you were uh, you said it, uh, Martin Olsson on the left uh, wing back, and also our our other wing back, uh, Garswillik Polo, is also very good. Uh, Maybe the best uh, right back in uh, in Allsvenskan, and Kristoffer uh, was into the big guy in front. Uh, Alexander Yermeev uh, is our top scorer, uh, and he's yeah also another key player. Uh, yeah, and of course our goalkeeper, uh, he's he's really good. He just came back from a, from a knee injury. Uh, he's been gone for a, for a year and. Uh, and he came back and, and did a great, great game uh, last, last time. From that there, I guess the, the striker, um, is that the kind of real danger man that we've got to look out for? Is he a, what kind of, what kind of player is he? Is he a, a, a physical target man type or is he more of a take the ball on the feet and try and beat players? No, he's, he's pretty complete actually. He has been uh, sold two times. This is the third time he has returned to Ecken. He has been in Malmö and also in Dynamo Dresden. And uh, I don't know which team it was in. Uh, uh, it's 20, I think. Uh, and uh, we always had uh, problems to replace him because he, in the kind of way we played, he was so important. Uh, he, he is a big, pretty big guy that you can... Uh, Put uh, a target man. He can also run in the more more like a more like a tall guy than big. Yeah. So don't yeah, yeah, yeah. don't think that we have a, we don't have a Lukaku on the, <laughs> on top. No. But you can uh, put balls uh, up up front and uh, also behind. He he is pretty fast. Uh, 
and he's good in uh, connecting with the, the the players around him. So yeah, he's pretty complete in the, in Allsvenskan. Uh, uh. Yeah, in our league. I mean, I don't know about Gavin Graham. I'm starting to get worried. Yeah, that's not the kind of player we traditionally are very good at defending against. <laughs> Maybe the guys in Scotland that play up front it is more of a put the ball up to them, hope they can hold on to it. And I think generally our defenders have handled players like that quite well, where they struggle is uh, someone who can take the ball and into feet and then maybe turn and run behind. That's generally where I think we've come undone the last couple of seasons. So uh, I'm not hearing good things from this boy up front. Sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even tell you right now what formation we line up in. Okay. I've genuinely got no idea with the with the way the squad looks at the moment. Whereas for the last eight years, I could tell you we're playing a four two three one, um, with exception maybe a little bit last season, um, where injuries kind of forced us to do something a bit different. But it's going to be a really interesting season for us. Hopefully, interesting in a good way. Um, it's, it's what we're hoping for. Um, but yeah, it's um, I I do think this is a I think in, in terms of the ties that we could have got, I think this is probably the worst tie we could have possibly landed at this stage in the, in the tournament. Um, what do you think so why I think because we are only playing I think three warm up games before we play and we we had the first of those today this afternoon Um, we don't have any competitive fixtures before we start with you I don't think the squad is complete yet we're only 14 days away from the first game Um, I'm just concerned we come in a bit undercooked Um, not quite match sharp not quite ready to go and you guys have obviously i know you've had the, a bit of a break but you've had two warm-up games and you've had three competitive games before you play us um yeah so that's a concern i think maybe the only thing that makes me feel a little bit more confident right now is that um uefa have decided to do away with the away goals rule oh they still got it oh, have they Sorry. i thought it was gone i don't know oh is it gone yeah it's gone yeah oh okay so, okay with us, but that's good. That's good for both teams. I think it's. I don't. I don't understand the thing about it. I think for us, just the reason I say that is just because we're the home team first. Um, oh yeah. So I think it lessens obviously the chances that you guys come here, uh, grab a goal or get a one-one draw or something, and then it's uh, it can be a real slog back over in Sweden. Um, so I think that maybe that might just help us a little bit here. But I'm I'm concerned we're just not going to be quite ready. Yeah, because that that's the thing that they talk about in Sweden with the Swedish uh, with the qualified for the Europa tournaments uh, that we are in the season when the qualifiers are, but it's still still hard. It's when 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 there is a difference between the uh, in quality, it's still hard, even though we are in the in the middle of our season. Uh, so it's 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 hard for us. We tried a couple of times before and. What is it like? We 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 lost against like Cork. Was it Cork City? Uh, and that was like everyone thought that yeah we're gonna win this. Uh, we're in the middle of our season and they're not. And but but then it's a difference difference in quality and that shows. I was gonna ask what's the situation because I did note in the highlights in the for the AIK game that there was a few fans in the stadium. What's the situation in Sweden right now with regards just? Our stadium take uh, taking takes about uh, six thousand, and uh, we were allowed one thousand. So it was really nice. We had people. I, I saw people crying after the game because they were back, and and it's really really nice to see. And and everyone was so 
I, it was something else. Uh, me and Jonas has has gone. We, we have been to the to the to the games because we are going on the media uh, part of the game, and and so we we had watched the games. But it's it's such a difference when when there are supporters, and and it's really nice. And from the first of July in Sweden, they uh, they said that we are allowed to have uh, more supporters on the game. And it's all about how big the arena is. Uh, you can have up to a thousand per, what do you say, like a section um, in the arena. So uh, I think that uh, our neighbors, Gothenburg, I think they had about 10,000 on their arena because they were playing the big, we got two Ullevi and they were playing the big one where you probably uh, played before in the 80s. And... Uh, that arena takes about forty-four thousand, so so it was ten thousand in that arena, and and so it's all it all depends on the, how big the arena is. Yeah, so I think um, I think the plan at the moment in Scotland is going to be. I think Aberdeen have applied to have at least two thousand at the first leg um, against Hecken, and then I think the plan hopefully is by the middle of August we'll actually have the restrictions gone um, with regards to how many people we can have in the stadium, which would be which would be great because you're right without the fans being in there, it's. It's just not the same. And I think even the Euros have shown that, um, just how different the games have even appeared to be when there's actually that atmosphere there. So, yeah, um, hopefully that'll be the case that we can get a few people in. Yeah, we had some contacts with the players after the game, uh, the last game, and they were like, yeah, the last 10 minutes, it was all your, your you, di- you did it, guys. And uh, and it was really nice. We really, we really, my, my voice is really not actually back since Sunday. So... <laughs> It was really nice. So I'm going to wrap this up, I think, right now, but I'm going to give one question to everybody, which is, this is a trivia question, and it's the one thing that connects Aberdeen and Hecken that's not Gothenburg. Does anyone have it? I'm notoriously terrible at these, so this won't surprise you that I don't have it. (laughs) No. Um, No, nothing. No, okay. So you guys played Dunfermline Athletic in Europe a few seasons ago now quite a number of seasons ago now. Um, and I think you beat Dunfermline over the two legs. But in the Dunfermline team that night was uh, Mr. Stephen Glass, who is now the Aberdeen manager. So there is a, there is a link there between um, Aberdeen and Hecken from uh, the relatively recent past. So um, hopefully from our side, it'll be a different result for, for Stephen this time around. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens in a couple of weeks' time. I'm really angry. How did I get that one? <laughs> <laughs> It was so close. I had it on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, guys, we really appreciate your time. Thanks very much for joining us and um, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. So that rounds off the first half of the very first episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Join us after the break. We're away to go and suck some oranges. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Pure, Aberdeen's premier independent menswear store. Visit in-store at 411 Union Street or visit online at www.pure-man.com for worldwide delivery. Pure, supporting the Don since Bonthrone.
Hi, welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. Now, one of the things we decided we'd like to do when we came up with the idea of doing this was to try and get some guests on the show. Now, whether they're ex-players, ex-management, coaches, current players, <laughs> and Wheel Kent or not so Wheel Kent supporters, all with one singular aim in mind, to bring you some fresh stories and tales of yesteryear and to examine their love or in some cases the lack thereof for the Dons and what Aberdeen Football Club means to them. And we're delighted that we get to kick things off on the ABZ Football Podcast by getting a chat with one of the most well-known and beloved Aberdeen supporters out there. A guy who doesn't shy away from wearing his love for the Dons on his sleeve. Just ask Jed or PK. It's our man in Spain, the one and only Graham Hunter. Okay, hi Graham. Good evening. Uh, joining us all the way from sunny Bealdside this evening. How you doing? Well, listen, um, I'm several thousand kilometers closer to Patudri. So I'm happy as a pig and shit, to be quite honest with you. I, some people orientate themselves via where their closest bank is, where their closest pub is. For me, if, if I'm near the home of football, particularly on a beautiful sunny evening like this, yeah, I, I, it, life is ambrosia right now. <laughs> That's not F.A. Ambrosia, so it, it, it's not, and I, I thank you not to swear this early in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Graham, listen, thanks very much for joining us on this. This is obviously the very first uh, ABZ Football Podcast. We're delighted to have you uh, on board with us for a quick chat tonight. I think first, first and foremost, let's have a quick look back at the the Euros that have just been and gone. Um, first of all. I think we just need to give you a lot of credit for the big interview sessions that you've been running right the way through the tournament. There's been a great listen. I'd encourage anyone out there that's not been listening to them to, to, to go back and, and check them out. But in terms of your own thoughts on just the championships as a whole, what did you think we learned out of that? Boy, that's a big question. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. Uh, never mind the, the plug, thank you for listening, because it's an extraordinary feeling um, to connect with people. Uh, um, I don't do this, and I'm sure you don't do what you're doing in order to make a louder noise than the hubbub to, to grab you know attention or for ego. And therefore, when you, you connect about football, and it's true since the very first time I wrote about football, to, to, to find not that somebody um, picks something up and reads it, listens to it, but the idea of connecting and causing a reaction, that's very special. Um, during the European Championships, what do we look well? I'd like to go first to the, the idea that, you know, that thieving, horrible scumbag, Michel Platini, uh, one of the most despicable men in modern football, when he came up with this idea to, to buy the elections by saying across the European continent to several countries that, that could never have expected to host a tournament on their own. So whether that's out in Azerbaijan or on their own, Austria who'd shared one or... Scotland on its own or Ireland on its own. And, and he went around, in my opinion, whatever reason people chose to, to give him their vote, he, he went around trying to influence the presidential vote in order to, to make sure that he got in. And it's a wrong-headed idea that, that, irrespective of the pandemic, that we should ask in a summer after any long season, football staff um, or, or fans to be traipsing around Europe. Um, it's completely wrong-headed. My opinion, and I absolve ABZ of any responsibility for this opinion, my opinion is that Platini did it in the most cold-hearted, most cynical manner um, back in 2012 when he touted it. 
And, you know, I feel brutally, irrespective of the fact that I don't know, none of you have shared with me what you thought of the tournament. But I think that pound for pound, in in the circumstances, it's the best tournament of any of our lifetimes. Because there's no way we should have seen the quality of football that we saw. There's no way that we should have seen the durability of creativity and, 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 and creative risk, again, use that. We should have seen probably um, more injuries, uh, m- more players like Inigo Martinez of Spain saying before the tournament, I'm not going. I, I remember very few guaranteed starter footballers who have said before a tournament, this is too much for me. But Inigo Martinez um, at Athletic Club said it is, it's too much. I I'm, not, I'm not able. I want to be picked again. I'm not, there's no beef with uh, Luis Enrique, but I'm not going. Now, what we saw pound for pound, irrespective of the number of goals, which with my sponsor's bet 365, there was an early argument in April. Sometimes they ask us off air, what do you think? How, how do you calculate this? And one of the guys that I like most at, at, at my sponsor said, look, I think we all think low, low goals. Sam Matterface and I were like, no chance. Forget it. One. Teams as a whole now don't know what it's like to stultify, don't know what it's like not to go on the front foot, not to try and win games rather than to try and avoid losing. Every so often in a club team or a national team, you will find the exception that proves the rule. But across the board, this is going to be a front foot attacking tournament. Now, having said that then, to to get what we saw was still, I argue, a huge treat and a huge surprise. So what did we learn? Pound for pound, um, we, we got a treat. We, we got given football. If there had been no COVID, if people weren't slightly fearful for their future well-being, economical, social, and their physical health, then right now there would be conga lines around every major country that took part in it. They'd still be, everybody would just still be on high from the quality of football. So society doesn't allow that at the moment. Thuggishness in England that was right-wing, horrible, racist fascism in some of the games in Hungary. You can always pick out, you know, warts and say they're not beauty spots. But it was an extraordinary, creative, thrilling, front-foot, daring tournament where favourites, giants, who thought that David couldn't hit them between the eyebrows, got hit between the eyebrows. And, and we learned that much. I mean, you, you haven't asked a question that's so open that I'm going to go on about individual players about whom we learned. But I think we did learn a lot about individual players. Footballers, I think footballers <clears throat> probably learned a lot about themselves and surprised themselves. You know, if, if, you, if you were to let the, the dust settle for a few months and go and ask Simon Kiar or Kasper Schmeichel, or those who acted with the greatest alacrity and, and those who were tested as to how they dealt in public with a you know a genuinely potentially catastrophic situation. When they reflect now with their partners or their kids or their parents, they'll be talking like we're talking now and going, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know I would do the right thing. I didn't know what I had in me. But they but they showed that. And the one I'll wrap up, the, the bow I'll put on, t- on top of the answer and little pink ribbon, pull it tight, is I didn't learn very much about Pedri. 
you know, I was tipping for a young player of the tournament from way before the tournament. Um, I think there's a strong argument that he was player of the tournament. Never mind Donnarumma. But this is a kid who, a year ago today, as we, as we record, was, was still playing football, trying to make sure that he, he didn't end up in Spain's Division 3. Was worried that when his transfer went through to Football Club Barcelona, who at this stage last season were still playing football, finishing their season, I mean, he, he thought he might be a season in Barca B and he was petrified they would go down at the end of their season into Division 3. He, he thought he might be loaned to a German club, maybe Borussia Mönchengladbach, to, to, to cut his teeth. And here is a year later as one of the two or three highest appearance makers for Barcelona in season 2021, a Spanish Cup winner, um, adored by Messi, um, within touching distance of being the second or third most important player at Football Club Barcelona. Spain's almost ever-present right through the semi-finals of the European Championship. He's come within the hair's breadth at 18 of playing in the European Championship final, and he was by a distance the young player of the year. And that just, for me, that that was the, the icing on the cake. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, the big thing, I think, for me about the tournament as well was if none of us were aware how much of a difference fans make to the game, I think the European Championships just showed how much of a difference the fans make to the game as well. It's the first time for a long time, obviously, in Scotland, we've been able to watch games of football now with packed crowds and everything. And it's amazing how much of a difference that even makes to the spectacle. Well, that was one of the reasons that when when my friend at, at 365 said, look, we fear, uh, <clears throat> we fear lower scores and the types of games that, maybe not a boring championship, but tiredness to take a, an effect, you know, lack of acceleration, just weariness, mental and physical. And one of the reasons that both Sam and I were, were utterly convinced that there would be an unstoppable effervescence was that, you know, we, we can only talk, and I don't know, I'm speaking out of turn for the three of you, whether you've played professional football at the highest level, but um, I haven't. And we can only speak as fans. And um, there's confirmation from all three shaking heads, um, which is what David is what David Burnham originally wanted to call his, his band, the shaking heads. Um, we, we, we get in behind the, you know, hundreds or thousands of our fellow supporters behind the team we love. We score or we win. And it's, it's utterly mental. You know, it feels orgasmic. You're, you lose yourself. You probably go out there and, and behave crazy all night. I, I certainly do. They're the scrapes I've been in because of situations like that. Even, even when we lose, um, so I've been ejected from the Bayern Munich game in, in Munich and then talking my way in past the stormtroopers again just because I made such a fucking pain in the arse of myself. <laughs> these, these, these giant Bavarian stormtroopers with you know steel bats and flipping shields and it's a little like Judge Dredd. They were like, all right, well, in German, they're like, well, you just fuck off and leave us. Like, yes, you can go back in. <laughs> so if that happens to us, if that happens to us as fans, when you're when you're a player. And you've done something good, a pass, an assist, a penalty, a save, a goal, a win. And you've got 30, 45, 60,000 fans roaring at you. It, it just sends you absolutely off the chart. So I agree with your assessment, but it was no news to me. And it was one of the reasons that Sam and I said, look, when, when, 
all season at the Liga Television when when we we would spoken to, to players who again they surprised me the, the quality of football that players have been able to produce when they've been completely um, what is it Brecht used distanciation was the technique that uh, Brecht used wasn't it you were supposed to be distance from the action so that you could see it more clearly rather than being involved in it. That's what's been happening to us in professional football all around Europe for the last 16 months. And, and you were saying to yourself, when these players play at this level and get a whiff of the adrenaline that fans give you again, it's going to go off the scale. They're going to be going to be red cards. It's going to be goals galore. And the goals galore thing happened. And I think that the I worry now about hangover. I worry about how much many of the players left out there during those four or five weeks and for how many months now all of us are going to be paying the bill saying, I wonder why he's a bit off form. I wonder why these injuries keep dropping. Anyway, that's another subject. But yeah, I agree with you. Fans I, I, fans helped make the tournament. They're just just the, the players having the merest whiff of this This is tribal now. Yeah. We're all at this together. That was that was bound, always bound to send it off the register. Yeah, no, I think. Um, well, I think all three of us would certainly um, agree with you there. But one thing I would like to ask, and I appreciate you've probably been asked this, and we've chucked it around the three of us, is sort of focusing in on Scotland and you know, a Scotland maybe it's a bit guilty about uh, being glad to be there, or was there a missed opportunity? And I, I phrase that question in. Before the tournament started, I was delighted that we were there. But as the so the games went on, I kind of felt like I feel like we've dropped the ball a little bit here, and maybe we could have give a, a better account of ourselves, uh, maybe the England game aside than we actually did. So just look to see what your thoughts on were we glad to be there, or could we have sort of showed up a bit better? No, it's it's a, you, you can't have a black or white answer on that. I don't think because. Of course, you're glad to be there, but they earned the right and they earned it. For my taste, Graham, they earned it, earned it hardly. To go through two penalty shootouts um, as other teams, and, and let's name no names, have recently shown, it's not very easy. Viva España. It just came out. Sorry, it's a sort of football Tourette's. Um, so to be there, um, full, full merit. Full merit and no question of it. And what would piss us all off is that part of what got us there was the momentum of having beaten Croatia and beaten Czech Republic in recent seasons, never mind our overall record against Czech Republic and Croatia, both of which are pretty good. I want to be careful here. I went to, to Alicante where Scotland were training and I worked with them for a day, which was filming and it was, it was filming and interviewing. And um, I found them very interesting, I found them very impressive. There's two or three of them I know quite well and like. It was my first experience with Steve Clark, and I found him, as I still do, I find him um, interesting, impressive. I think it's unquestionable that not all the gains that we've made are down to him, but I think we could doubt that if he weren't there, that we'd have made the gains quite as substantially and quickly as we did. It was his first tournament as a manager. Um, I can't remember if it's his first tournament as a player, but I think it was. I think tournament football is is um, is extremely testing because you get an awful lot less time to assimilate, to learn to make big decisions, 
to to judge moods, to judge, to to cope with setbacks. Um, so in club football, you, you it's it's more relentless, but you have far more margin of error because you've got a bigger squad still. You can go to the youth squad if you need to. Twice a year you get transfers. You're not expected to win every game. If you lose a couple and win four, you're back in an even keel. Well, you can't do that. If you lose a couple in a group, you're out, as we saw. So in my opinion, and, I, and again, I wish you had Tim here to speak for himself, but in my opinion, because Steve Clark is an, is a, is an intelligent um, learning man, I think that he would sit here and if he was if his guard was down, he'd accept that there are certain things he might do differently. Now, one of those wouldn't be our goalkeeper being off his line for the Czech goal uh, because that truly was an out-of-the-ordinary exceptional goal. And if you want to press high, it's not like we had the highest defensive line and we were known as a high-pressing team and, and therefore our keeper had to be a sweeper-keeper. But in principle, the goalkeepers now are asked to... to whenever their team is in an offensive situation, often what I'm doing for UEFA is, is taking snaps from the press box of keepers who are on the halfway line or ahead of the halfway line at set plays for their team. Now, you know, Marsh didn't look all that great when he's up, bundled up in the net, but there's very little, very little that he, he, he did wrong there. It was just extraordinary. The, the, the killing the cross before it comes in for six header, that's a problem. You lose a jump, you can those who, who plan the way in which the ball comes into the box and how to defend it can analyze that differently. But for my taste, the thing to get right is to is to make sure that the either the cross the ball doesn't get to the crosser, who's the West Ham boy, is it Kufal? And you either stop that ball getting him out there, he's on an overlap. We don't read the overlap. We don't respond quickly enough to the overlap. And therefore, the cross is in mint conditions. It's like, have a fucking shot. It's like when Ali McLeod said to Johnny Rep shoot. It was just, it was just about identical. And therefore, that, that's a wee problem. Those are things that we're analysing the match. For my taste, again, the litmus test wasn't simply that we had to win against Croatia to go through. The litmus test was... When everything's on the line for Scotland in knockout matches, we don't tend to do well. We, we can sometimes excel in, in matches where all the odds are against us and nobody thinks anything of us. But I think we're in the process of changing our personality. And I think that's almost as important as, as tactics. And it's not as important as whether Lee Griffiths is fit or whether we Billy Gilmore is fit because we don't have a natural prolific scorer, somebody who can score brilliant goals or the ball can go off his testicles. We just, I name Lee Griffiths, one, because I hope that we sign him and that he stays slim and that he knocks in a thousand goals for us in two seasons. But, you know, ostensibly, if you look at it, if he were in shape, he was the answer. He wasn't in shape. I don't criticise anybody for not taking him. But when it came to the Croatia game, I'll say this, I have no clue why, so, so, for example, in my opinion, in the England game, England made a mistake in sticking with Phillips and Rice against a team whereby they could have afforded to ask us more creative questions in midfield. We did well. We ha handled the pressure. We handled the ball. 
We kept it away from them for longer periods than we're used to. And because we got we had decent players in midfield that day, and they played well and they weren't their butts off, we asked them a couple of questions in terms of, you know, could we have scored? Yes, we could. Then the, the real test is having done that and having lost Gilmore, which is a blow, but it can't be definitive. We can't lose a 20, I don't know, is he 21 year old in his second or third international say, well, that's what screwed us. That can't be the case. Massively better if he plays. But what I don't understand is what the decision-making was when McTominay plays at centre-back, which I don't think he did in the first game, did he? But he plays at centre-back at Wembley. Does he play both games at centre-back? I think you're right. I think he played midfield in the, in the first That's game. That's my opinion. Yeah. He played midfield first game, back three at Wembley. And the absolute stick-out thing to me was, not in retrospect, because I've spent the last seven years or whatever it is watching Modric is extraordinary. None of his quality is diminished. But what he can't do is run away from somebody and certainly not run away from them all night. And in my opinion, pre-match, the obvious thing to do, and the magnifying glass went and made it still more obvious, neon flashing lights, but Tomini, Catanacho, in your pocket on Modric all night. So he couldn't go for a pee. He couldn't do anything with that Tomini pot. And I'm going, I'm still fucking here. It might sound negative, um, but for my taste, um, with either Henry or, or or Patterson, either in a back four or Henry in a back three, what, what, however you want to frame it, I'm at Tomini not letting Modric even understand how to spell Luca, because he's literally breathing in his ear all night. And I'm not talking about kicking him up in the air, not more than 15 times anyway. But I am talking about Scott McTee is a phenomenon. And I, I happen to think he's an extremely good footballer. There's more to come. There are areas to to refine. But he could have he could have gobbled Modric up. And what's more, he could have intercepted and gone away from Modric. And Modric ran the show all night. And um that's where our tournament ended, in my in my opinion. Yeah, no, thanks. I think we probably have the same opinion. He's an excellent player. But yeah, obviously he is an older player than he was, so you don't lose the ability. But yeah, you do lose that physical element, and we didn't really seem to cotton on to that. And then obviously you had the space to do what he does best, which was also a bit frustrating. I'm, I'm cheating a wee bit, Graham, because I spend you know, a, a co-commentator in the league of television. You know, when I'm not working, I'm always watching every weekend. I'll always watch Atleti, Seville, Real Madrid, Barcelona at minimum, and, and therefore. You 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 see the the extra weight that had been placed on Modric all season because Valverde missed, if not half the season, close to it. Cruz had moments where he was just wrung out and couldn't go anymore. Look at Modric's um, game total for somebody on that 34th, 35th birthday uh, border. Um, if you allow him time, then all the old things click in. And we did. We, it's not only that we didn't put McTominay on him and say to him, you're just doing nothing tonight. And if we go 10v10 against them, it's not a guarantee we win. But I'm saying I think we win. I believe that we win. Um, but not only didn't we do that, the rest of them didn't really understand. Because very few people in this game are asked to do that anymore. And it might be that, that 
Stephen Reid and, and Steve Clark were, were, were philosophically opposed to it. I'm not accusing them of negligence. It might be that they just simply didn't believe in the tactic. But it's certainly, you asked me my view, Graham, and, um, and that's it. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's good to get your opinion and maybe not the opinion people want to hear. Graham, um, obviously, as you just made reference to there, your career has seen you, you know, work primarily in Spain and you've also had a close relationship with the Spanish national team that's reflected in your book, um, Spain, the inside story of La Roca's historic treble, available to buy, I believe, on Game Hunter's <laughs> website for those listening. Hi, Dad, man, you're, you're a top salesman. You're a top, top worker. What was your, what's the impression in Spain regarding their performance? Like for me, I think watching the first couple of games, especially, I got like a real sense of Germany in 2018, where there was a lot of good stuff going on in like the first and second parts of the pitch, but up front, they just lacked that focal point. And, you know, you've made mention to him there, Pedri, at the time of recording, it's just been announced that I think Messi has agreed a new five-year deal at Barcelona. So he's not going to come and play second fiddle to Jet at Aberdeen, nor will we get the answer to the question, can Lionel Messi do it on a cold Wednesday night in Stoke? But Pedri there, you've made reference to him a few times. Just how big a player is he going to be? Is he going to be like the next generational talent? The first thing you mentioned was the response in Spain. And at first, um, it, it needs to be separated out because there are large branches of the, of the written and broadcast media who are, you know, just arse pieces. And they're completely against Luis Enrique because... As a footballer in 95, he said to Real Madrid, I won't be renewing my contract. Bosman had just bust the rules. Um, Luis Enrique did leave for free and went to Barcelona. And although he never you know, gave them sort of two fingers as he walked out the door, metaphorically, that's what he felt like. It's what the press felt like. And he's a very, he was a very belligerent footballer. Whenever he felt he was getting... Um, prodded or he was being talked to by a stupid person and this is partly why I like him he, he let them have it he, he didn't have time for fools or, or provocateurs and he's been that way largely as a coach too and I mean not, none of the three of you will be unaware of what this is a metaphor for what is a metaphor for? when I say to you that there's a large bias in the press in the central region in Madrid. And if they think that you, even though he's an Asturian, he comes from Gijón, the most important team for him will be Gijón, he's held to be, he's thought to be a Barca man. All right, he played for Barca and he coached Barca, but anti-Madrid he's not. He's a practical man. Had they been the right players for Madrid, they would have been picked. Had Ramos not stood on his toes badly during the Eastern Internationals, and if he'd been fit, he'd have gone. And, and therefore, it took a long time for... And, and, and when Ramos was left out legitimately in my book, I was sad to see it, but it was the right decision. And they, they bring in a Frenchman born in Ajon. Um, Emmerich Laporte may speak perfect Spanish, may have been good enough for Athletic um, to be treated as a Basque. They, one, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not even in disguise anymore. One fuckwit journalist very soon after Laporte declared for Spain and had played his first game, which I believe would have been against Portugal and then they'll draw. He asked him straight in the press comments, um, do you feel yourself fit to represent a nation, a flag and an anthem? You know, it was 
Well, they're going over the top. There are too many places in the world right now that stink of Munich in 1937. And that's what that stunk of to me. And, and therefore, that mood, I'm expanding out now from the micro to macro, it took a long time, I think. Um, and, and there was chaos, given that Diego Laurenti and Busquets were, were you know, medivaced out of the camp with, with positive diagnosis, one of which proved to be, you know, a false positive. The other one wasn't, but it was Busquets who got game time when he came back. You know, it's pretty chaotic. If you think about Emmerich Laporte, a nil-nil draw against Portugal, the, the, the bias against Lucien Reiki that a lot of this Madrid media have, you know, the two guys shipped out. There's a close down for COVID for however many days. It's a bubble. They ship in 14 or 15 under 21 players, plus six other senior players who've come back off their holidays. You know, Fornals at um, West Ham, uh, Rodrigo at Leeds, Albiol from Villarreal. I, I could go on. And if you mix all of that going on, then, you know, most of the other sides, you know, had a pleasant Valley Sunday beginning to the tournament. Spain didn't. And then when they, you know, they did, I've seen this before. I was, I was with them as they flew out to 2008. And in the book, if you read the book, the book tells you that, you know, for the two last internationals, one of which was against the USA. And I forget who the other one was against. I think there's that beautiful cover. I think the other one was against a, Central American or South American team, but at any rate, they, they won one nil twice, and, and one of them was against the USA, and they were booed out of both stadiums in in the last ten days before going to Euro two thousand eight. Literally booed off their own home turf. So there was a drama there. There was a drama after they lost to Switzerland in twenty ten, and um, there was so much bile and opprobrium heaped on Vincente Del Bosque in twenty twelve. After the Croatia game, which qualified them and and went through. Um, when did they go through? They went through in the third game to face France in a knockout round and they scored in the 89th minute through Jesus Navas and, and had Croatia scored, Spain would have gone out. It's important to say that. There was so much opprobrium heaped on Vincente Del Bosque who'd already won the World Cup two years ago. Overnight, he, they flew back from the game. No, they, they travelled back from the game. He stayed up all night and um, re-watched the game because he, he was so affected by the shit that was being heaped upon them that he, uh, like a good man that he is, he wanted to check that he hadn't got it all wrong. And he went back and he held an impromptu press conference the next day. He said, look, all, all this stuff that you're saying, all this rubbish, I've gone back and looked at how we played. I looked at the quality of possession. I looked at the chance creation. We were significantly at the back team. You're all talking pish. Being Marcos Del Bosque, he, 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 he slightly phrased it differently. But I, I like to think of the world as, as pish and not pish. That's, that's, that's my take on things, and it's got me this far. That's what a lifetime at will do to you. <laughs> it, it does make it a little bit that way. Um, so, look, Gabba, the second part of your question was about Pedri, and, and you have neither the bandwidth, nor the time, nor the patience for me to, to say what, what I need to say about him. You know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in an era of Cruyff and Pelé and George Best and, and Dennis Law, and throughout the rest of my life, there have been, you know, genuinely extraordinary figures. And then I get to know, and, and I have filmed with, I don't know how many times, um, Messi and, and Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets, and, but also Lampard and Gerard and I, I don't know who else. And 
I, I think I, I'm not saying he's going to be better than than any or all of those, but I still say that at 18, the things he does in the position he's in, that whereby it isn't about a, a dribble or a sprint or a trick or a brilliant finishing, where it's about having to know things. It's it's like he's been born for the second time. It's like he's lived 36 years before this last year in senior football. He 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 has pictures in his head about what to do. He he he's got a stoop and his arms held out and his socks rolled down as if it was the 60s again. And and he does things with the ball that makes when if any of you have any listening has seen the film that we made Duncan and and my math and Zoom and I about the Barca book that I wrote. The film's called Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. And in it, we interview Samuelito. And Samuelito is a, is a tricksy character. And we, we pinned him down in Turkey at a benefit game. And it happened to be, didn't it? Just fucking happened to be. The, the, the build-up was the night before this mini-revolution in Turkey where people took to the streets and the army put it down and there were people shot dead and the message came to all the players who were at Eto's game in their private jets <laughs> scramble lads, GTF everybody panic, brown shorts hit the skies and our our guy who was going to interview Mark Guillen managed to say to him, you're not leaving until we get our interview and he went alright you've got 20 minutes but the minute that clock says 20 minutes I'm out off this couch and I'm sprinting to my private jet and I'm out of here and he gave us many, many, many brilliant quotes, most of which got in the film, not all. But he, he, Eto said, when I first started playing at Barcelona, people asked me who astonished me. And Eto goes, and they all wanted me to say, Ronaldinho, ooh, ah. But it was Iniesta. And Eto says, Iniesta, this is Eto, arguably, in my view, the greatest African footballer ever. Iniesta does things that makes that makes football simple. And Iniesta would play in any of my teams always until he retires because there's nobody like him. And again, I don't want to make a direct comparison about what Petty will achieve compared to Iniesta because life is full of vicissitudes and you never know. But Petty plays like Iniesta. Petty does things that, that Iniesta was still having to prove I think Iniesta made his debut in 2001, 2002. By 2006, in the Champions League final, Frank Reichard, who should be able to judge, wasn't sure that Iniesta should start, start the Champions League final. And <laughs> there's Petri at 18, and Koeman's like, yeah, you're playing all the time. And Luis Enrique's like, yeah, you're playing all the time. He, he, it's... Gav, I, I hope I've, I've, I've given a shot at answering it. But the what I feel about Pedri is, is is just about boundless. He's he's like the new Derek Hamilton, if you remember Derek Hamilton. Came on against Rangers in about 1978. We were losing. I think he scored twice or three times. John Gregg got sent off. Derek Hamilton trotted about lanky, socks down about his ankles. We were in the beach end, cheering louder when John Gregg got sent off than when the goals went in. So... For anybody who remember Derek Hamilton, me comparing Pedrick, there's no no finer praise. 
I was going to say, I guess it's a good time then to turn on to the Dons, I suppose. That's the main event. That's why we're all here. We can pack that European Championship nonsense in the rear of the mirror now. And then... It was glorious, though. It was. It was fantastic. Graham, you're a guy who's, you know, you, you, you've never hidden your absolute fanatical adoration for the Dons um, through your career. And can you, can you pinpoint, can you kind of recollect where that love of the Dons started? It's day one. But I can't tell you why. Day one would have been, um, I have no idea if my mum persuaded my dad get him out of the house or if my second, my, I'm one of three, maybe my, my next brother was was coming along or I, I, I don't know what, but it would be late-ish 60s, 60, 67, 68, something in that direction. And we used to go, we used to go and see the reserves and they were all decked out in Chelsea blue. So it was blue socks, blue shorts, round neck, blue, blue strips. And going into Pataudry then, and, you know, there weren't big crowds, but there was enough people there. It was interesting for people to go and watch the reserves. And gradually, I would say, well, what are the reserves? Why are we watching? I'd enjoy it. Um, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have had heroes immediately. But my dad, um, who's out of earshot at the moment, but, it's, but is here at a season ticket for fif- over 50 years, well over 50 years. He would have told me about uh, Jinky Smith. Um, Tommy Craig was a name at the time. And gradually as I understood that there was another team and, and what the reserves were. I, I wouldn't pest him. I'd ask if we could go. And for whatever reason, I don't know if he didn't have enough money or what it was, but we would, he would take me down to the beach on the first weeks and months when I was allowed to go to games. And he would take me down to the beach and we'd play in what we used to call, what was it, the, not the Adventure Park, but the, there used to be a place where there was a, a, a concrete train and a tunnel and stuff like this. And we used to go and just play there, father and son. I'd still be, you know, I'd still be five, 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 six. And, and I don't know if you remember, but they used to open the gates. They would open the gates about, 60 minutes and we'd go in for free and watch the last half hour and I don't know if I was attracted by the clandestine nature of this going in as some what people are doing going out at 60 minutes I don't know this day and my dad has um, difficulties with his memory so I couldn't ask him now what was in his thinking but um, it might be a boring answer Gary but it's the truth for me it was instant and I do remember when my youngest brother was born and um, we went to visit him in the hospital and it was at the beginning of the, the first game of the season was Aberdeen-Hibs and it was something like Hibs came in 1-4-3 or something like that in the very early 70s, late 60s, whatever it was. I was fuming that I couldn't be there. But before the result, I, was, I couldn't understand why I couldn't be there. And it, it must have been a big crowd. There's no way we could have got me in. He was going for the full game, my dad and all. So some, there are many reasons why it's become toweringly important to me and why it's become part and some of it's pathetic you know I, I I still to this day the last game I saw was on TV it was Aberdeen Rangers even though I was watching it analytically because I'm lucky enough to speak to the manager now and sometimes phone calls sometimes whatsapps and I, I, I knew what his intentions were before he came in I, I was speaking to him while he'd taken over at his old club from Frank de Boer I was watching what he was trying to do there, just simply because I was interested and because I remembered him as a super player. And 
yeah, <laughs> even though I was watching it analytically and I took some video and, and diagrammed it for my own information, it is still the fact that when a team that I care about, and there's only, you know, there's only one that, that I support, but sometimes sometimes if I'm working, I can get involved with teams that, that matter to me because of people. But there's only one team I support, only ever has been one. But um, I, if they're on the pit, Spain do this to me too, which is fucking ludicrous. I know you can probably not understand me through my thick Spanish accent, but I'm not actually Spanish, just just as a shocker there. But I, like with them and the dandies, even though they're, they're only ever at one time 11 paid, they're not mercenaries, but they come and go. For, for, for the vast majority of the players that any of us have watched, it doesn't feel the same to them. For one or two of them, it does. One or two of them every eight years, it might do. That's me on the pitch. When they, if they play badly, it, I feel worse. I feel reduced. I don't feel unhappy because it's not that I feel sad my team's lost. They're representing me. I'm on that pitch. I, I, they're carrying me, my self-regard, my self-worth. So that has happened over the years and it happened really quickly. But, but that means I'm actually, and some fucker puts on that strip. And that's me, you know. So that's a pretty bad cocktail to have. And, and, and it, it could begin to explain some forms of aggressive hooliganism around football. I don't think that in 99.9% of, of the cases it does. Most of them are just drunken thugs or coked up or whatever and have been since time immemorial. But when you think that's you out there, not I wish, but literally your spirit, your self-worth has been carried there out of the pitch, then it does crazy things to you. And from a very early age, probably from, no, no when I began to watch Aberdeen Air or Aberdeen and Bertie Old's party, so, but pretty much from the first time I saw us play hard WD Molenbeek or Eintracht Frankfurt, something about the excitement of an Aberdeen against Europeans, and I was locked in, locked in, and, and my personality and, and my, my whole being and, and my whole view of myself got locked in. And if Alex Ferguson hadn't come along, if that era hadn't happened, and, and, and if it hadn't had that transmogrifying effect on me and my vision and my confidence and my aggression, I'd have been a completely different person. And heaven knows where I'd have lived or how I, what I would have done as a job. So I still had this ability with words, but because I was so, com my personality was so completely interlocked with that badge that I'm just seeing on Graham's shirt there, it, it, it's a, it was a Frankenstein experience. They literally... You know, I, I was given new limbs and new perspective and new eyes because that period happened long. But prior to that period, I was utterly locked into their, my spirit was locked into what they did. It's amazing how many times the same thing will come up around how special a European night <clears throat> at Pataudry especially can be. And how, when you're a certain age, how transfixing that that place could be. And I'm fortunate here, Gavin and, and Graham won't won't remember this but I remember the first time I really fell in love with Pitaudry as a stadium and it wasn't even an Aberdeen game it was a Scotland under 21 game in the early 90s it was a European championship quarter final I think against Germany 
and that Scotland team was full of like Jess and Booth. There was a whole host of Aberdeen players in it, and some really good players from around the country. And we had tickets right up at the end of the old um, beach end, right up the back. And the place was jam packed under the lights. And what an atmosphere in that place! For and I would have been, what was I, seven or eight? And from that moment, that was when I first fell in love with the stadium, you know, and and how much it meant to me. Well, I agree. And uh, although um, there was a, <clears throat> an equivalent game for me, very, very young when I think Eddie Colquhoun played, and I forget who else, in an under-21 game against Belgium, early 70s. The, the thing, the stadium got its grip on me for different reasons. I, I, I still get this feeling when I, if you walk up and, and look down on green, the, the first senior game I would have gone to, which... I mean, for the life of me, 69, 70. Seeing the, the, the turf's not sunken like you get in some stadiums, but coming up on a winter's afternoon, the floodlights are already on just to, to lift everything. And you come up, you look down, and I don't think that I, I, if they kicked off earlier, I didn't go to winter games, I can't remember the floodlight effect for the reserves. But there were farmers sat from, I mean, real juky noisy farmers sat around my dad's seat in, in the centre stand. And I'd never heard rich, deep, uh, Doric voices like theirs. And they all smoked uh, rich um, pipe tobacco and cursed like fucking troopers. Hmm. So I'm sitting there hearing them roaring at the referee, challenging authority, laughing, laughing at themselves. They were cheery folk. They were good folk. They were... They're, they're, accents that I didn't hear regularly at Cults Academy. The smell of that tobacco, which was rich and sweet, will, will last with me forever. And that was just, that, so that had the same effect as you. And that, from that point onwards, the, the place was magical to me because it was so unusual, there were things I didn't understand. And it, it was already sh- shaping and changing me, I think. What was your greatest Aberdeen game that you've seen in person? doesn't necessarily have to be at and why? So by greatest, I guess everyone's got their own definition. That it might be winning something. It might be a player. It might be a goal. Whatever it may be. And there's there's a big array. I'm not sure if it, probably probably because I get so fucking intoxicated with my own noise that I'll probably end up picking one. But I'd like to say here now, Graham, I'm not going to pick one. Give me six. Give me six minutes. I mean, it's not the Hamburg one, but it. For a, for a while, I thought it was going to be the Hamburg one because if I'm not wrong, Franz Beckenbauer is playing and we're winning. And and I'm like, oh, all these times I've seen West Germany and Bayern Munich beat teams that are that I really you know care about or want to win on the day. And here's Beckenbauer and we're winning. Big horse Rubish looked like a flipping German secret police and, you know, we whoever goes off injured and we keep playing and we lose a goal and then we three two. But for, for a while, it was going to be that Hamburg one. The, the cup final at um, 82 cup final, what a day, a bus from the outside in, um, early lucky in. So we had tequila sunrises before we left. Um, bit of booze in the bus, bit of singing, down to the game, drinking an 82, what am I at? 17. Yeah, 17. And, um, you know, it, it, who scores the header? McDer- it was a dingus who scores. 
So we're one one going in extra time. I think Dingus scores the header. Is that right? Tati scores the last one. I, whenever the ball gets chipped across, it's dirty Dingus. And I leap out, and there's a police phone. And I kiss the police phone. I push it out of my head. And, and it ends with a local boy, a boy who I was at school with, briefly thumping the ball in past Jim Stewart. That's a day. Tynecastle, St Johnston, the semi final before our most recent League Cup win. We'd been on it since lunchtime. I'd been called away from a massive bevy session in the, what the hell's that pub, that brilliant pub on the road in, in Edinburgh. It's just on the right. It'll come to me. The Something Burn, uh, not the Rayburn. Roseburn, the Roseburn. Exactly, the Roseburn. We've been in there since it's opened. There's been a whiskey of the day. We've gone far past pints. I get a phone call saying, Luis Aragonés has died. Can I write an obituary? We're, we're well into our session. I write the obituary, send it, get back to drinking. Nick across the supermarket, buy a half pint of whiskey, stick it down the back of my trousers, get into the game, and we explode. The game explodes. We're brilliant. I thought we were brilliant that day. And I don't think that any of my vision or my judgment was skewed by what we've been doing for the previous four or five hours. I thought we were utterly sensational. And, and therefore, Graham, you're right. It, not many people are going to have, but what a day out. And we, we, we saw Simi on the way out. We mobbed him and jumped in him and pick, got a piggyback off him and then went out for the rest of the night. And it was utterly, utterly superb. But the closest I've felt to ecstasy, just total, total ecstasy, um, was by America Pataudry. When, you know, you think we've, you know, the nil-nil guy, if you remember that, even the scummy Glasgow Press had to write up the nil-nil at the Olympic Stadium as lots of them were maybe the best away performance by a, Scotland, a Scottish club side ever. But it's still only nil-nil. They score, we score. I think Simi gets one just before half-time. They score that butte. And, and when they make the sub, I forget who comes off. I forget who comes off. But we Johnny Hewitt comes on. And, and in the space of those... You know, those those two goals that we score, that's how it happens, how quickly it happens. The noise, the noise when all the stupid newspapers were saying that, you know, sweetie papers and blankets and that fish. And, and the Germans were scared. The Germans were, were worried. And the way that we get those goals. And then I don't know how many minutes are left. I remember thinking at the time it was about 12, 13. It probably wasn't. We kept the ball. We kept, we taunted them. We made them chase us. Unbelievable. Un- Listen, you've done it. Now, what about the 4 0 before the 4 1? You know, the, the, week, the weekend before that 82 Cup final, we t- it's Rangers. We fucking pumped them 4 0 up Tudry. Then we go down and put another four past them. 8 1 over two weekends. Oh, gee, I tell you what, man. My semi-final record in person is something to behold. I've seen Aberdeen win once, <laughs> and I've seen us get pumped a whole lot more times. <laughs> so that day you're talking about uh, St Johnston uh, under Derek McInnes the first season. I think my band were playing a gig that night in a lemon tree, so I couldn't go along. So me and my mate, me and my mate Mark spent so much money on streaming websites, none of whom had the game, but kept saying, but kept <laughs> advertising they had the game. And yeah, we just, yeah. 
I think we ended up like listening to we ended up listening to it on the radio in his car on the way to but the, the positive vibes. All that all that money you spent, all the positive vibes you sent down, that counted. That definitely counted. 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 And then I think I remember Gary getting to the venue for the gig, bluttered with his Don scarf on, <laughs> and just like, oh, what, what a moment. <laughs> We've, we did it. We've made it at long last. It felt explosive. I, I So we've each got our reasons for... But if, you know, you're so used to going to games. I mean, like you, across my life, I've seen so many games we've lost that we shouldn't have, particularly under Derek McInnes. Semi-finals and quarterfinals I'm talking about. But prior to him too, the number of times I've seen Dundee United turn us over or... Celtic Rangers and semi-finals and finals where we shouldn't have lost. And that day, from the start, we just, it was like a champagne cork bursting out and we we just, we ripped them apart. And, and better still, because they came back at us and irrespective of scoring, do you know that I didn't, I didn't think there was a moment that afternoon where I was I was not 100% certain that we were going to win. And that that's glorious. That... On, that's tantric. That's that's Sting and Trudy, that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Graham, you remember this. We missed the first goal. We were we were boozing and we got down onto what's the main stand at Tyne Castle? Is it, is it the Wheatfield or the the Walter Kid, isn't it? Ah. Walter Zico Kid stand. <laughs> and like we are coming up that this the queue's the length of the street to get in, eh? and like we're standing there and all you hear is this massive roar go up because obviously he was so early and it's like what the fuck no can he be so everyone charges in the place is going bananas already at that point and uh graham you're you're, you're right i mean I, I still talk about to this day knowing we'd finally replaced duncan shearer when the ball gets played through to adam rooney and he's got half a pitch to run and from the moment he picks the ball up at the halfway line he's not missing this he is not missing this i am cast iron 100 percent sure this is going at the back of the net and sure enough, it does. And you're right. What a day! Because I think our recent history in semi-finals up to that point as well had been so terrible that it was just that sense of relief that we were going to do it. No, I, I think we were a team full of personality. Um, you know, the Johnny Hayes song made made it better. The Peter Pollitt song made it better. You know, it felt like it felt like that was. The, now it turned out not to be the beginning of, of anything, but it felt like it was. And so that cocktail of, you know, we'd each had a couple of pints and it's a semi-final. You're pretty sure you're going to beat whoever comes out of the other semi-final. It, it's all afternoon you feel in control, but also you watch the players and you're like, they know, they're confident. It's a buzz. You know, it's what those elderly sisters in Glasgow have that we don't, you know, we haven't had since Fergie. You know, they're all like, they've, they've sworn in there with their arses hanging out of their dresses and their, their bulbous noses and their, uh, we're the ugly sisters, but we rule the palace, all that fish. But they've got, well, the thing that sustains them is like, I will, I will we, we don't get to feel that very much. No. And, it, and it's fucking gorgeous what we do. Yeah, I think uh, this has all been too jovial for my liking, so my next question has to take it down a notch, <laughs> which is, uh, what's the worst game you've been at? Um, I'm sure we can probably all fill uh, plenty of space on that one, but I'll point this one to you. Well, I, I don't know is the answer. You know, I've been so unhappy so many times. There's one that goes down in family legend where my dad 
um, who was the business manager for um, a show called Scotland The What, and he'd grown up with uh, George Donald. He'd been at school with Huntley in the in the forties. He'd known Steve Robertson and Buff Hardy since the middle sixties at university, early sixties probably even, um, and he'd business managed them since their first attempt on stage in 67, 68. And Buff and Steve, for a long time, Buff, Steve and my dad were three season tickets together. Steve was the first to drop out of supporting Aberdeen or going to Aberdeen. Buff and my dad stayed until the very last day when neither of them were all that great on their feet. And one day in the 70s, for what was either, it wasn't a Texaco Cup, maybe a Drybra Cup, a Drybra Cup game at Dundee United and we were beaten and we just didn't show up. We were sitting, the three of us, in the car, morose, buff. My dad driving me in the back and couldn't move because of cars. And somebody wanders up and knocks on Buff's window. And Buff's like, oh, geez, the last thing I want to do now is talk about the show or talk about scripts or jokes. And he rolls down the window anyway. And the man, he hangs his head in and goes, God, murder, was it? And turns and walks away, and that's that's all we <laughs> had to say. And and murder was it uh, was just stuck with us forever and ever and ever. And I've been the games where I've been unhappiest. I I don't know. God, I me and my best friend Graham Runcie, we used to make a habit of 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 trying to go to Ibrox whenever we could. And and I, I can't deny that although I was never a casual or anything like it, I dressed very similarly in the early eighties. It would have been my Italian loafers, um, very light blue jeans, um, a sort of buttoned-up white shirt and a pink Benetton jumper. <laughs> and we would go to Ibrox and we'd sit together. And if we if we, if we we scored, I, I was uncontainable. I, I never taunted people around me, but you would stand up and roar. And you're never treated like this at Parkhead, but at Ibrox it was dangerous. And, it, it, you know, the level of hatred from men and women and old folk and just it, it felt like being in a pit of evil I'm, only, I'm not talking about the club I'm talking about the people that were around us in those days it was, it was a horrible feeling so losing at Ibrox is, is never pleasant I mean fuck's sake, I don't know worst did you really ask me my worst ever there were games I hated the one I hated the most recent um Defeat by Dundee United at hand, and did, did we have Scott Brown in goals? Yeah, not the Scott Brown. A and we Scott went one nil, and we went one nil up. I mean, we would have been better off with the Scott Brown in goal that day. And and they 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 they, they had a sort of Serbian style striker who, who I moved on to Celtic or something. Oh, um, Shivki, Nadia Shivki, yeah. And and on that day, um, I was with Al McLeod and Graham Runcie again, and. I said to them, you know, we're this is happening. That's wrong. At one nil up, we're, we're going to lose this. And you could see where it was coming and the anger. I don't like being gubbed. I don't like us losing matches where somebody like Lee, uh, Lee, uh, Lee Miller got sent off against Dundee United at Tynecastle in a no, semi-final. Yeah. yeah, I was there and that was crazy. I hated it when you know. Dundee United used to come up and flipping Neri or whoever would boot some of our players off the park and Luggy would score. That pissed me off. 
that day watching um, that Dundee United team unpick us, onion layer by onion layer, going, we see this, and our and our staff didn't. Um, I hate that. I hate. I, I, I'm not good at. Um, I hate to see us humiliated, um, but there's nothing I hate more than if an idiot like me can see the reason for something going wrong, you know, five minute, ten minutes spell by ten minutes spell, and we don't do anything and don't react the right way, that drives me utterly fucking bonkers. Um, um, I don't know what I've ever done to you, Graham, but, you know, thanks for that. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really genuinely fucking boiling with, with I'm in a bad place now. I, I'm not kidding you either. I'm wondering what I've done to Gary because he gave me the questions. <laughs> as Graham asked that question, I kind of started thinking to myself, what would I put down as that moment? And as you say, there's a semi-final recently we lost to Celtic. Um, I think it ended 3-0. It was under McKiss. It was when Don Ball got sent off in the first half. And listen, Gary, Steele, our other friend, Alan, we've suffered through a lot, but we've always kind of had this philosophy that you stick with it till the very end I remember when Tom Rogic I think slotted home the free kick after Lewis Ferguson had been sent off it was the one and only time Gary and I didn't even even say a word we just looked at each other and that was it we're out well, I never leave I never uh, I'm different um, I have to say to Gab I, I, you won't catch me unless there's a you know a life altering reason you won't look, look, catch me leaving early and and what I tell you, you've done is you've. I want to. I'm going to deliberately close this chapter by reverting to the previous question. And I want to mention a, a late friend of mine, David Quigley, in the '80s at uni, said to me, "You should be doing. You should do journalism. I've seen what you write for the student paper. You know, you should come and do hospital radio things." I went to the hospital radio Paisley with them, and their hospital radio Paisley was sitting in some grubby hot room above a bakery in Paisley's High Street, but still it had landlines fitted between uh, Greenock, um, Love Street, Hamden for for Queen's Park or internationals or cup finals and Parkhead. So we would send commentary, voluntary commentary teams down to these places and it was in days when there wasn't as many radio stations, obviously in the 80s. And, and also it was in days where you, know, you weren't getting all the matches live and patients would actually listen to us and we would get commentary from a Samaritan game, a Morton game, Queen's Park, they were playing in a very interesting all cup finals, all Scotland internationals, and any Celtic game. And I remember we we were doing by this stage, I don't know why I was doing a commentary, but I was. I still, and now that I'm a co commentator, I don't know how I ever did it, but I did. It's a difficult job. And it was the Skull Cup final um, of 1989. And it was us against, um, us against the current Buns. And um, you commentate, and I didn't, you know, I didn't once betray bias. It's it's the Bua van der Ark and, and Paul Mason, Charlie Nick game, and we win. And and I don't know if any of you, all of you have been old Hamden, but I don't know if any of you were ever in the old Hamden press box. So it's like Ski Sunday, you know, it's it's literally perched on top of a downward facing roof. And you know, you you could probably if the if the whole press box had slid off, it could probably have done a triple circle before it hit the center circle. It was and you could just see it like a, a cross section, you could just see it like a um, a microscope. You could see the so 
first of all, you have to teach yourself not to shout, there's a bus, because you can see it like you've never seen it before in your life. Once you get over that, you, you, you eradicate bias because you've got people listening to you, particularly in the west of Scotland, who don't want to hear any of your Aberdeen shite, so fair, fair enough. But all, all up and down the, the, this huge, long um, press box, which is about three rows and stretched for three quarters of the entire main stand on the roof, the Aloha Brewers who run Skull go around putting out like Charlie and Chocolate Factory golden tickets. There's these sort of tickets. Um, they'd have been A5 size, it was so big. Um, all, all across, all up and down every row. And at the end, um, when... Mason scored the winner, and, and the whistle goes. Jesse's man the match, in my view. But anyway, this is people's because they're all blue noses. All these tickets being thrown on the floor. So I'm like, I wonder what they are. Pick them up. And all of them say, you are invited to a free, they were doing formal terms, free booze up at the Swallow Hotel immediately after the match, all eat the Swallow Hotel. I mean, you had to like that, that sense of irony. <laughs> So it's, it's 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 for the publicans who've been Aloha Brewers' best publicans all over Scotland. They're giving a free day out and they invite the press. And all, all, the, all the, 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 the hard journalists have thrown them in the force. I'm like, right, I'll pick them all up. So I pick up about 15. And there's no mobile phones, phones in them day. So I have to phone around a few flats where my mates live. So listen, you coming out? We're going to swallow a hotel. So we all turn up in, in dribs and drabs. And by, by the time we all get there across to Paisley Road, south of whatever it's called, Paisley Road West, sorry. We go in and, and people are pretty pissed. And what's the Clyde Bank fella who used to be chairman of the league, Jack something, Jack Steedman? He's doing a wee, you know, with his wee arm, he's doing his wee speech, and we all stick in the back, sinking pints, which we've never seen in, never seen free booze before at this stage. So we arse our way through six or seven free pints each. There's about 10 of us. It's absolutely brilliant. Nobody challenges us because they're all pissed. And in, in, in the back of the room, there's a subut, you know what a subutu table size is like? All of you know that? Yeah. There's a cake that's that size, which is on um, a table with runners, and it's got all the wee subutu men and, and gold. And we're like, that's coming home with us. <laughs> we've just beaten. We've just, we've just beaten. And at the, at the top of the room, whoever is, is doing another speech now, not Jack Stephen this time. So people are all, ah, go on, ah, ah. The back of the room, we do like the Antel mob. <laughs> no. Three sets of hands on the front, three sets on each side, three sets of hands, and we're like, we back out of the room and, and break it in half and, and put half in the boot and half in the back seat. One of the, There was only a couple of them that had cars at that stage. One of them was a, a steamboat's Alan, Alan Hepworth. And we, we lived in a flat where there was four of us. It took six weeks to eat our half of it. It was so big. So it feels now, Graham, that I should have gone straight to that one. <laughs> and, and we won the cup. We won the cup. Now, Graham, in your work for Sky Sports and the various broadcasters that you work for, clearly you've been involved and you've seen firsthand some of the most generational talent that the world has ever seen in football. When you think of the games you've covered, both as a journalist and as a fan, could you tell us like what one player would you take into the current Aberdeen team? And I'll ask this question in two parts. Which player would it be? And secondly, 
why would that player be Sergio Ramos? <laughs> it did, I don't know is the answer. It depends. You know, I oscillate a lot, which I don't think is illegal anymore. And, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it's not anywhere. I could be wrong. European regulations have gone now. Um, you know, there was a stage when I'd automatically have said, uh, Willie Miller, because there could be no other answer. Uh, and Willie stood for everything that um, that I thought was right about life, never mind football, about how you compete and, and to what extent you compete. And also, you know, I, I'm not a bad person, but certainly when I began in journalism for the first nine, ten years of full-time journalism, people thought me, um, if not ruthless, then... Um, not everybody agreed with the way, the voraciousness that I treated um, competition and, and, and stories. And people used to say, um, all right, well, we've got a story here. We'll, we'll share it amongst, you know, rival newspapers so that they look after us the next time and we'll, we'll divide it up. We'll do this bit today. And I was like, bollocks, we will. But a new story tomorrow. And if we don't, I'll take the consequences. I'm doing this and I'm doing this now. Or I'm not sharing with you. Or fuck you. People in my own paper used to come to me and say, you know, let, John Richardson was one. So metaphorically patting you on the head going, now, you're doing very well since you came down to England, but there are one or two people in, in the football in the North who feel that you're a little bit abrasive and, and, and it would be much better for everybody if you're not. You can go and fucking sit on a pole. Honestly, you can stick it up your arse. And that was that was a combination of having watched Willie and Alec Ferguson in action. No, no bending, no compromising, uh, no cheating, no no unnecessary brutality or nastiness, but hard. Don't no quarter, no quarter asked or given. Certainly no quarter asked. So there would have been a long time when it had to be Willie. That that sense of MMT stash means trophies. Every time we went to Hamden, I talk about, never mind fucking, who was your man with the dogs in the cakes? You'd ring the bell. Pavlov. <laughs> Pavlov didn't eat dogs and foods. Just close my eyes, let me smell the burger fans, vans outside Hamden and play that bagpipe tune. I'm like, we're going to win the cup. cup. Just reach for the cup. Even like the old father Jackie would father drink cup. I agree. Bring back moustaches. Any Aberdeen captain? Yeah, well, Wolf would be the he would, well, he would be the you know the instant answer. After which, I've never lost my love of Cruyff, his elegance and 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 what he's done to 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 my life because of um, if if he didn't design football the way he did, I I wouldn't have been as inspired to write about it. I, I wouldn't have moved to Spain. Um, I wouldn't have thought the same way as I I did. You know, all of us know that. What do they call it now? They they all call it sliding doors. So Ferguson coming to Aberdeen, sliding door. Um, Cruyff impressing me somehow in the early 70s in those European Cup winning sites for Ajax. In the little television we saw. If, the, if you see little television, but it's Ajax in May at, at 8 o'clock at night, um, that'll do you <laughs> forever and ever. Messi, sensational. I mean life-affirming, life-changing, anything in life that continuously can astonish you, 
Because most things in life aren't made to do that. They're made to be repetitive or corrosive or sometimes dull. Things that you love can be hard to find and hard to replicate, but they genuinely, they, they, it, it can surprise you that they've come along again, something that makes your heart sore. But somebody that can actually do things all the time for 15 years and more, 16 years, and, and, and continue to astonish you, that's rare in any walk of life. I think if I if I had to, my magic wand in football would, would do two things if you gave me a magic wand that, that had two things. One, I'd bring Ty Cooper back to life. And that would be first, easily. And um, the other one would be to, to take, uh, gosh, even talking about it. The other thing would be to take um, 10 years off Chabby's life and just make him 25 again or 24 again. And I, I think he I think he became my favourite ever footballer, which is incredible given um all the Aberdeen people that have made me so happy, the people that I've interviewed, the, the people who've been good to me um within football, um, the things I've seen, the places I've been, I still think it's Chabby, to be honest with you. Obviously, in your work um, with Sky Sports and the other broadcasters you work with, um, you'll have been live in person for many in El Clasico, Spain winning the World Cup, Spain winning Euros, Champions League ties, all this good stuff. What's like the one moment that kind of stands out in your mind where you've been like in, say, like El Clasico and you're in that that moment and I've never been there and Billy Gary or Graham ever have. We don't know exactly what the atmosphere is like, but I can imagine it's just electric. When you're there, have you ever like found yourself just like checking your phone though and live score to see if Aberdeen are still getting beat 1-0 by Hamilton? Oh, always, of course I do. Um, I don't know if I've been unclear or lacking in passion or I've doctored my language too much, but it's only the fucking dandies for me. That's all that counts. So I do it all the time. Um, it, it tends not to be the case that the dandies are playing against a World Cup final or against a Classico because the Classicos tend, not always, but they tend to be, you know, eight or nine or ten at night. And it's irregular that the mighty dandies um, are playing across one of those games. But if if it were the case, then then without question, um, unless I was, even if it was on co-coms on television, then at halftime I'd be checking my you know, checking Twitter or my, my texts or whatever, because um, you never lose your you never lose your love. You know, I I love what I'm doing, and I'm extremely lucky to to have been given these chances and to to have been gifted when I was born with enough ability to get by doing what I'm doing. But I'm not in love with any of them. I'm only in love with the Pataudry and Mighty Dandies. You say that there, like yeah, it's always been the Dandies for yourself. Have you ever found yourself like speaking to? I mean, I'm just I'm referring to Barcelona just because I can see the book in front of me right now, and I know you've had conversations with these players. You ever found yourself speaking about Aberdeen with the likes of Pique or Xavi or? Are you fucking kidding? Are you genuinely? Are you taking some sort of LSD at the moment? Uh, every single one of them is sick to the back teeth of me mentioning the dandies to them. Any given opportunity, um, there, there's a, there, you, you can go and check YouTube. There's a YouTube video of me and PK in the August after the 2010 World Cup. 
And he's doing an interview with me sitting in a stand in the training ground. And I'm like, have you worn that jersey for me? Have you worn that shirt for me? And he looks down, it's red and white stripes. He said, I know you're an Aberdeen fan, but no, I don't. And you can go look at that. Wherever I go, um, I mean, Del Bosque, for example, if you've read this poem, we're in one of the corridors in the football stadium in Pretoria ahead of, I don't know if it's the uh, final against Paraguay, I think it is. And, and he, Cesc and Pique are in the press conference. And we're out in the corridor. I'm waiting for Sesk or PK to come out. Sesk, so I've got to interview him in a TV studio that's built into the stadium. So we're in a in the in the corridor. Dabowski and I just waiting. He's waiting to go in. I'm waiting to nab the player when he comes out. And there's there's nobody else around. So he turns to me and starts saying to me, he goes to me, so what was it like under apartheid? And at the time I thought, what is he fucking? He's spoken to me often enough. Does he think I'm South African? Is it? But he was just asking, do you know what apartheid was like? He said it in a strange way. So once we dealt with apartheid bad, freedom good, um, I got him, uh, I know where you were on May the 11th, 1983, do you? And he's like, no. I said, you were sitting in the stand in Ullavai Stadium in Gothenburg. <laughs> and he's like, oh, and I said, like, Aberdeen 2, Roman did 1, Cup Winners Cup, the Stefan was the coach. He said, all right, I see, so, yes, Aberdeen. He said, okay. Right. He goes, brilliant. He goes, name me the team then. I said, Leighton said, no, 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 name me the Madrid team. I'm like, okay, Augustin, Method, Camacho, Gallego, Stilica, Angel, Juanito, uh, Santiago. He's like, whoa, whoa, okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 good. That's, at that stage, the door opens about 25 feet away from us and Pique and Cesc come out from the press conference out the back door. And he's like, Literally, I fucking swear, this is, what a dandy, this is what a dandy blessing will do for you. He goes, oh, lads, in Spanish, oh, lads, come over here and speak to somebody who knows about football. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get that when you support one of the ugly sisters. <laughs> in Seville, at Atletico, wherever I go, 11th of May, 1983, and they all go, they all go Leighton Miller McLeish. They might get stuck and they often get Ferguson. If you want to go and look at, I'll send you by email. There's a there's a there's a recent. Um, I was covering Spain Italy uh, for UEFA.com, where if if I, I'm not mistaken and I'm not making it up, we had five billion page visits, five billion page visits at UEFA.com for the European Championships. And there's a point at the in the Wembley semi-final where I was a bit overcome by this is brilliant. I was like, well, look. I've worked, you know, this is me tightening. I've worked long and hard to get here. It's not been without sacrifices, but this is just about as good as it gets. Sitting in the most famous stadium in football, comma, with the exception of Aberdeen Football Club and Pataudry, comma, and we're in the... I think, wonderful, get in. Stays in. So that's out there. And, and if that page hasn't had 60 or 70 million views, then I'm a monkey's uncle. <laughs> so... You know, that's why my remark about LSD, people everywhere in Iberia are sick to the fucking back teeth of me mentioning that Andy's done. We went to Madrid for the Atletico game. That was, that and was we did brilliant. The, and we did the tour of the uh, the Bernabeu, I think the day, maybe on the day of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're doing, you're going through, like, I'm going to call it the trophy room, but it's called, to be fair, it's like a trophy hall or section of the stadium for Real Madrid. 
And you know, you get to that point at the end, and I'm sure the tour guide hadn't heard this at all at any point during the day, but someone pipes up and says, uh, mate, where's the uh, where's the 1983 Cup Winners' Cup? Well, if you if you permit me, I'll tell two stories about that. One, that when I first moved to Spain, the Real Madrid press officer was a guy called Paco Navasarada, and he was a squat, ugly, pretty vile creature, to be honest with you. Unhelpful. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to mention body odour, but his, his personality stank. So one day, it was Roberto Carlos's birthday, and we'd been at the training ground, and it's older training ground, and you could get in, and you could get into the cafe, and some of the players would come cafe because it was his birthday he came in with a big cake and pieces of cake were shared out and I got a piece of Roberto Carlos cake and he would come down the Paseo Castellana uh, to to the where the press conference was being held and on that day it had been raining so much that the entrance into what was a pretty temporary room was was kind of flooded and you couldn't get in and they were going to get people to sweep away the water so we could so Paco Navasarana the press officer and I happened to be at the front, and we're sort of whiling away, time Del Bosque style. So I'm like, right. So I bring up 1983 again, and he just looks at me balefully with these toad eyes, this toad face. 1983. I said, do you remember? He said, that was the, the, La Temporada de las Cinco Copas Perdidas, the season of five trophies lost. And they'd lost the League Cup, Super Cup, um, the Spanish Cup, the league and the Cup Winners' Cup, all either in finals or the league on the last day. So it's called, because Barcelona during the 50s had a, uh, La Temporada Cinco Copas when they won five cups. And <laughs> Madrid had the season when we lost five cups, including the league on the last day. He says, I was doing my military service. And it was, because we weren't the last trophy, but they'd lost, I think, four prior to that Cup Winners' Cup. And they were like, Never heard of Aberdeen. He said, doing my military service in Extremadura. In May already, it was stinking hot. I was at the back of a big sort of canteen filled with people. He said, there's a small black and white television about this size, and your team went and beat us. I was like, who fucking who? <laughs> I was like, what kind of moron tells you that story so you can stick it right up him and go? And the other one was, I was interviewing Simi recently for, we did uh, a Gothenburg memorial film which I hope will be out soon him and a few others um, um, in in including Stephen Gunn and, yeah. and Gav Gav is who I'm thrilled that Gav Levy's in charge of our academy anyway they, they all wanted to come over and watch um, Atleti train so I helped them get in to, to see some Atleti training and Simi went back, and I, I, I'm not sure that I helped at all. I think he went back on a course, and this time he went to uh, Valdebeos to watch Madrid train. And they were courteous to him, and they invited him in, and they invited him into somebody's office. And it was Augustine, Augustine who played in that game for Real Madrid. It was his office. And there was a picture of, do you remember the one where, is it Dougie Dougie picking Stilica up? And you know, it's quite a famous image of, Stop your fucking acting around. And that's up in his office for some reason. And, and somebody's going to Augustine. I was in that team and Augustine's like, I remember you and absolutely brilliant. Augustine, despite them losing that day, he communicated to Simi, um, look, you were better than us. You should have won before extra time. No hard feelings. You you were you were absolutely tremendous. 
and that guy was a pigmentler. <laughs> Simi, <laughs> Simi was telling that story with the same sense of awe as I get from speaking to Simi. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, just loving the dandies and living abroad is like having an extra passport. It's helped the lads out in Lisbon and hit a tough spot. I know that. Yeah, that's a story for a different uh, for a different podcast, I think. But you won't remember this, Graham, but um, we ended up boozing with you um, the night before in Madrid, before that Atletico game. Uh, a cheeky little Cypriot bar, as I recall. But yeah, what a night that was as well. I remember, I distinctly remember Joey Harper being poured into a taxi. I think, uh, somewhere at one of the main streets. Well, I was with my brother, Pete. I was a friend of mine called Cheryl Campbell. Uh, we'd been doing business with, she'd been doing business at Aletti early in the day. And feeling we'd been at another game. I think we went to another game prior to that. Did we play on a Thursday night? Is it possible that Seville Arsenal was the night before? I think Seville Arsenal was the night before. And I think we went, my brother and I went to that and then came up. And I remember, I remember wherever, whichever pub we were in, I remember there's a lot of it's a goal, it's a goal for Henning Bowl. Um, there was a lot of old songs came out, which I really loved. And Graham Anderson, one of our neighbours from Cults, who was the brother-in-law to the late uh, Duncan Skinner, he was there as well. I don't know if it was the same bar as you, you guys, but it was fantastic. Such an atmosphere, such a buzz, eh? Ah, it was a great, it was a great few nights. And the bounce on the underground and the way at the stadium, it was just mental, man. It's absolutely brilliant. Felt so proud. All I remember is being in that bar and Steele, obviously on the cast with us right now, just coming over to us and he'd always just spotted you, Graham. And he's just like comes over really excitedly and just announces to us, our man in Spain! Our man in Spain's over there! <laughs> well, I probably thought I was being discreet. I probably wasn't. Uh, I'm, 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 willing, I'm willing, I'm willing to bet I enjoyed myself with you. Listen, I, it's great stuff to always be reminiscing about the Dons, but let's look ahead to the new season. And I'm waiting wait to say now, let's look ahead, but I think it's impossible to look ahead without looking backwards quickly. The last two or three seasons, I think, uh, Graham, with the exception of a few months here and there, maybe, it's been pretty torrid viewing, I think, for supporters of Aberdeen. Um, where, where do you think it maybe started to go wrong for, for Derek McInnes? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think um, he's one of the first people I, I met as a full-time journalist. Um, I'd been taken on first as... I'd been part-time for years, right, for Sunday Times. Decided to go full-time and I went down to Inverclyde to do a, a feature for the Scottish Daily Mail in, I don't know, 95, about players who were getting the pro badge. And Jim McArthur, the old Hibs goalkeeper, uh, knew Derek, who at that stage, I'm still not even convinced he was playing for Rangers. I, I think he was taking badges um, while still at Morton, I think. And I remember being impressed by him and meeting him sufficiently long to chat about his football ideas. And, and he became, you know, easily an above average footballer for West Brom and Rangers. And he won us a trophy. And it'd be impertinent of me to say where it went wrong because factually I don't know but it, it emerged over the piece that there's, there's a Jekyll and Hyde as far as I'm concerned without any question not retrospectively in real time you could see that he improved the standards at our club standards within the actual stadium standards at training types of ideas and attitudes and rigour and that was um, essential 
and and that can never be forgotten. He'd be entitled. There have been times when he's asked me for help on scouting, and I did help. There was a time after the St Johnston semi-final at Ibrox, I think it was, not a quarter, I think it was a semi. Oh, it's another one where it was strikingly clear to me that we were going to lose at 1-0 up. And I and I said so on TalkSport the next day, and I got a phone call from him within five minutes of coming off there. What do you mean not a good day at the office for me? Well, this is what I think. We had it out there and then, <clears throat> and it didn't damage the relationship to the extent that he knew that if he asked me to do something in Spain, and there was a couple of times there were players that he wanted checked up on or scouted, but also background. What are they like? What, what do people say about them? So I, I, I remained you know, happy to, to, in the rare, rare occasion where he might ask something of me to, to help him. But his, I mean, he can go so fucking what? You know, I've done my badges, I've won Aberdeen a trophy, I was a top level player. He can say that. But his concept of football and mine were, were completely different. And, and over the piece, what I saw was a team that didn't like possession, that kicked it long, that was tactically undressed by sides that we should have been beaten and people got under our skin and understood us. And we played a brand of football that, that you know, was out of date when Bertie was practising it for Partick Thistle. Didn't enjoy it. Um, I didn't believe in it. And I, and I think that it took us too long to understand that. Yeah, I think we'll come on to think about the club in a minute. Um, or a minute or two around that. I mean, I think for me, there was, there's two things that, that, that always jumped out, especially in the last two or three seasons, especially. I think the first few seasons with, with Derek, there was a verve about the team to an extent. We were a real high-energy counter-attacking side, and it was exciting to watch, get the balls down the wing, throw balls in the box, and it, it was good. The last couple of years, I felt it was a lot more passive, and you've talked about it as well, the Pep Guardiola pet hate, the swinging you passes, full back to centre half to centre half to full back and back across again. Way too much of that going on. And I think, I don't know, here's a question as well. I mean, do you think he became a bit of a resultista, shall we say? I think I, th- I think my, this is where I'm becoming pertinent. I, I, it's not a point of opinion. I think it's a fact that he's an impressive package. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a good looking man. He's articulate. He's convincing. There's a West of Scotland edge to him when it, when it needs to be. I think he held a lot of people in thrall. And I think that we all do what we can with what we've been given. That isn't a criticism. But I think it helped extend people's... This is, you know, that... I'm not sure Henry knows who said it, but some gyms everywhere, the definition of madness is to keep doing the same thing, but expect different results. And I think that that, um, that maxim was, was probably ignored because... You know, Derek is an impressive person. And it would be illegitimate not to point out that he kept getting us entry into European football. It would be illegitimate to ignore that big result in the league at Ibrox after 265 years. It would be illegitimate to forget, uh, you know, Lucy Scola at, at Hamden in the, the Cup and, and lifting the trophy... It, it, all of those things were enough to, to make people at the club think, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe if we just, and this is this is the impertinent bit. I think the world is a cold place. Um, I was contacted by clubs, one in England, one in London, asking me about him. And I gave my view and they came back and said, well, we've heard this and that next thing, we're, we're not going to approach. And he had a little look at Sunderland and I, and I 
my opinion is, again, that that was a shrewdly played hand where he was never going to take a club where he could have been out of the door in eight months' time, given how volatile a club it was. Or he could have he could have done wonderful things. He could have won, gotten promoted and won them the League Cup. My, my point is about Sunderland, not about Derek McInnes. I think he, was, he played very shrewdly a hand that said, this is, this, is a, this is a good club. These are good people that employ me. The salary is big. This is quite a, a comfortable place to be for a while. And I think we're all used to Aberdeen managers who, who are good will say, well, if I've, if I've done this here, maybe there's something else. And um, those aren't good enough moving on a little bit more quickly. And I think that um, the then chairman had a vested interest in solidity, financial solidity, had a vested interest in us finishing high up the league. I'm not saying that anybody ever consciously did a venger and said, you know, third or fourth is good, but it's not fucking good enough for me. And I think that subconsciously a, a clutch of people went, let's not rock the boat. Mm. And I think yeah. that the manager was was doing his version of his, his, his best work. There will be many people who think I'm wrong because we were a, we were a stable, healthy club. We occasionally got big results. We, we, we showed in, in, in the league. The revenue was exceptionally important. And, and I think anybody who doesn't recognise those good things about Derek McInnes is just lying to themselves. But there were two things that weren't good enough for me. I don't believe that there were, that there was concern. I, I know he, players told me that he told them, anybody who doesn't think we can take the old firm uh, out of here. There's no way that I'm, I'm, I'm bad-mouthing the manager then and, and saying, you know, he was at it. That, that's, that would be, that would be utterly ludicrous. There's an enormous amount to be grateful to him for. But there was an atmosphere at the club whereby when either Celtic or Rangers were within touch, whereby we, we were not full gun every day, all the time, every waking hour, going, bring them down, bite their ankles, haul them down, overtake them, scratch and bite and kick until we win the title. And there's another thing, which was that that, that football, which increasingly became the ball is not our friend. And players were taught to be nervous of the ball, taught to use it quickly, taught to give away possession. That was not... That was not good enough for, for far too long. Far too long. And, and my judgment, honestly, uh, my judgment was, was made that day at Hamden when we lost to Dundee United and I felt we've got, we've got an able manager who should be cutting his teeth elsewhere, who should be learning by experiment and risk elsewhere. And he's bumping his head on the ceiling here because the potential he's got is to go somewhere else and go, okay, I'm, I'm being asked to use different muscles and that would have been good for him and it would have been good for us. And I wish him success. And it, if the next time he wins a trophy, he, he finds a little bumper camera and goes, right fucking up you, then I'll salute him for it. And that's what he should do too. <laughs> I think uh, that's quite a... I think it's a good reflection and one I think certainly the, the three of us share. Um, thoroughly enjoyed some of it at the start. There were good points in terms of the way we improved on and off the pitch. And yeah, obviously uh, you can't really ignore the negatives. That's, you know, that's the way it is. So going forward, obviously we've got Stephen Glass now. So it'd be good to understand sort of what you see as the differences, aside from the fact, obviously, he's got different experiences in terms of his being in America. But 
the three of us are kind of feeling like um, there's a different approach to maybe how we're going to tackle a game of football now. It's not going to change overnight, but just noises coming out of the clubs and, you know, the way Stephen Glass conducts himself. So just maybe, not necessarily contrast and compare, but what are you what are you looking for? Or what do you think Glass is going to bring? In any appointment, whether it's a signing of a player or a change of owner or a new manager, there are so many um, imponderables and so many things can can trip you up that you that's impossible to see coming. Making big wild predictions is is foolish. Sometimes I do it out of conviction, sometimes out of exuberance. But you know, you, you're a measured lot, and and it seems we have more things in common uh, that the one, two, three, four of us than than separate us. So what I'd say is that Stephen Glass is is, is scholarly. He, he's a guy who has deliberately widened his horizons. People might forget that he was a sterling footballer at Newcastle and went to an FA Cup final to get a job in America and to work to that level and to be trusted by the owners to take over from Frank de Boer. But to have um, an extremely avaricious and open mind for information about football, for ideas about football, I like that. I'd like to believe that there's a possibility of him coaching a team like he played. He was very good in possession. He was quick to use it, but he used it intelligently. He was daring. He was technically gifted. So it's it's my opinion that um, he's got another card in his favour, which is that um, our chairman is is head over heels in love with the organisation where Stephen worked and worked successfully and was respected. That helps you because getting a job like this is is difficult, but I, I'd been speaking to Stephen in America for long enough to know that when the job came up, that he would he would go for it, hell for leather, and to give up the possibilities in Atlanta, who not long ago were, were champions of America, and to move back to Aberdeen during a pandemic at a time when the club is having difficulties to get its finances right, where we're overstretched where there's a possibility of a stadium change. A lot of people would go, uh, right job, wrong time, not Stephen Glass. So my hopes are that, no, as a, I'm convinced that we've got the right person. I'm absolutely convinced about that. Given what he's told me, I'm more convinced that he'll be the right coaching influence. I have no doubts at all about his beliefs or how he's going to be able to explain them. I think then there has to be, you know, tectonic plates in any football project, whether it's your, your local team or it's Real Madrid. The tectonic plates have to fit. You have to be trying to do things that the club will allow you via its chairman or its director of football to, to achieve, or at least to the best of their abilities, so that the plates aren't like this on top of each other. They're actually beginning to mesh. You need some of the public opinion to be in your favour. You don't need all of it to be in your favour, but you cannot be pissing into the wind all the time when you're looking for, unless you're Johan Cruyff, when you're, and he won a trophy at Camp Nou within, I'd say he signed in 88, and I think by 89 he won, I'm pretty sure he won the Cutmaners Cup against Sampdoria, maybe 89, maybe 90, maybe 90. But you can't be, when you're a new young manager at a club like Aberdeen, you can't be pissing into the wind all the time. You need some of the media and some of the fans to go, I tell you what, we're behind you. We're going to show you faith. We're going to be noisy about our 
support. We're going to be patient. And if people don't do that, then, then you know, God damn them, because this is our club. We put up with, for too long, a brand of football, which was, you know, we were drawn back to it like we were staring into a fire. It wasn't right. We knew it wasn't right. And yet, for away days, for memories, for that eternal hope, for the fact that occasionally we saw, you know, players that we, that, that sparked our belief and our hope, whether it was, a, you know, the wee keeper, the wealth keeper from Liverpool or Madders, or we saw, you know, Campbell coming through or, you know, we, we fell in love with Sammy Ballon d'Or. Johnny came back. You know, Paulette gave us the best song we've ever had. There were things that kept us hoping, but for too long, if we can cannot transpose some of that faith and love to Stephen Glass, then, you know, people don't deserve him. He needs to be judged by the same standards as anybody else. Um, he knows that. I'm even more convinced by um, his edition of Scott Brown. Outside what Stephen has told me, I've spoken to a lot of people who've either worked with Scott Brown at Celtic, know him personally away from football, or who went through training badges with him. And the verdicts are, are astonishing. They, they, they couldn't be more glowing. And none of us, I think, none of us who are sentient had any confusion about Scott Brown, who wants to win a tackle or wants to put you off your game or wants to influence a referee any more than we thought that that was the sum of the parts for Willie Miller. You know, there are different things in there. And Scott Brown seems to me to be exceptional to the extent that if, if he's as good as people say he is, then not quite like Billy McNeil, who we lost in a season. And good luck to your new man who's come in at Celtic. You know, best of luck to you, just because his name is long and difficult to pronounce and he's come <laughs> from a different, a different continent doesn't mean that he might not be utterly superb. But in general, the way that Celtic have been over the last eight, ten, excuse me, eight, ten months, how they're feeling right now in comparison to the other ugly sister. You know, Scott Brown is as good as he he people tell me he's going to be, then we could have a damn hard job keeping hold of him, is my opinion. Those are big words, you know, at the beginning of a season where, you know, there are so many things that could piss in our chips. These words might be gone with the wind by September, we'll see. In my opinion, we've appointed well. In my opinion, Stephen Glass will teach us positional football and possession football, and he will help players like, Crory Ferguson, should he stay? Hedges. Who's a nice left back that we've got? Young kid. Jack McKenzie. Say again, McKenzie. I'm pleased, I'm pleased about uh, Gallagher for absolute sure. Johnny, I don't want to see playing up. McGeach, coming back from Spain for a big interview, we were somewhere in London the night that West Ham Stadium finished with a win over Man United. Before that, for some reason, we watched a Hibs game. Must have been a Hibs playoff game. I saw Dylan McGeach and I said, that that fella can play. And over this time, he's become tentative about taking the risky step forward and receiving the pass in a risky position. Because he can sit back and, and spray it from a deep four position, he, he's got so much more. And I'm confident that Stephen Glass and Scott Brown can teach him to be the player that he should be. So I think he's very talented. Look, that's enough of that because a lot of what I'm saying um, might sound like it's fan club stuff. But it's not. I believe in his articulacy. I believe in the brand of football that he wants to play. It's time we played that football. I spoke to um, a man who, who looks after our pitch. There's a lot of work being done on it. Our pitch isn't particularly conducive to passing football. I know it wasn't any better in 1982 and 83, 84. 
But it's time that it was. It's time that it was that it was flat, that the ball fizzed true and quick, and that we were encouraged to outpass teams and, and beat them. And, and the one thing I will say that I think is not, you know, it's not unfair for me to reveal. I know the manager's extremely pleased with the, the jumping quality in our forward. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, but it's it's very early days and a lot of things need to happen well for us. And we're all agreed that the Conference League draw hasn't helped us. And I wanted us to play, you know, I wanted us before Christmas to have played, you know, four or five home ties in Europe, not out in, in fucking pre-season. And, and I don't give up on us beating the Swedes. Hecken, I think it is. Oh, Klub and Hecken, yep. And they've won three, drawn four, lost four, or it's 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 either, it's a formation. It's either four three three or three four four. Since the change of their manager, they've won two two games on the bounce now. Well, I'm not giving up on it, but there there were many many easier draws out there. You know, hopefully this is a Rayeka season for us. And I remember I was interviewing. I don't know if I pronounced Rayeka correctly, the Croats, but I was interviewing Ivan Rakitic as he as he joined Barcelona, and it was about I was interviewing about two weeks after that. And, I, and I, you asked me before about stuff the dandies down his throat. He just joined Barcelona from Seville in the season 14-15 when they win the treble. And he leaned forward at the end. How did you win there? Nobody. Remember, remember they had about a three-year unbeaten run at home. And we and he went, nobody wins there. It's like, <laughs> yes, uh, dandies, mate, dandies. <laughs> off you go, off you go. Listen, I think that's a moment to conclude. I did a passable... Sean Connery doing bumper, doing Ivan Rakitic. So if that's not a good out for you, then I don't know what it is. I agree. I think one last question, Graham, and we're going to ask all of our guests this. Okay. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? Everything. Everything. I'm getting emotional. I can't answer that question properly without um, the, the emotions rising to that little point. You know when you eat wasabi too quickly? <laughs> and it hits you right. I don't know if this is a visual or an audio, but right at the bridge, the top of the nose, and and, and your eyes are, and you're like, wait, why did that? Fuck? I mean, it's green. Why did I eat it anyway? But <laughs> <laughs> Gary, I can't do better than I said before, and I was telling you the truth. Not anybody who pulls that jersey on, and is being paid by my club. That's me. That's my self-respect. That's my pride. That's my self-worth. That you, they could be gone in six years six months or 16 years they, they, they could be from Darlington or they could be from Burkina Faso or they could be somebody who grew up like Sean Maloney and who who, who wanted the job and and you know grew up in cults and built side it could be any of those people they pull on my club's jersey and that's me they're carrying my self-respect my hunger and my ambition out onto the pitch in a pre-season friendly at Huntley or when we beat Hecken and, and, and we go onwards and we're we're playing the might of you know the seventh place Belgian team in the quarterfinal. Um they're they're my they're my past, they're my future, they're my spirit. If they lose in a way that I can't understand or, or in a way that frustrates me, it's not me pissed off at them. I feel bad about myself because they, they somehow or other in some fucking scientific transmutation that Baron von Frankenstein would have been proud of. They are me and I am them and it will be like that way forever. Love it. If you if you if if you wrote that down rather than listen to somebody say it, you'd go, you'd just look at it and go, you saddle. But 
they are the the, the me the why I've I've done what I've done the why I've chosen what I've chosen they they that, that team playing in red it didn't matter if it was Chick McClelland or Joey Harper or Joe Smith or Willie Young or Bumper or Bobby or through Simi and Tatty and and Johnny McMaster and me Johnny Hewitt and Dirty Dingus McGee and all the songs we Mark Mark McGee runs at the self defence he beats them with these with great expertise and his shot gives um, latch with no chance. They, everything they did, Archie Knox, Fergie, Jimmy Bonthrone, being the other day Willie Young threw his jersey at, at Jimmy Bonthrone's head. Everything about that club changed me, made me, gave me the, the unfucking believable life I've had. And without them, it wouldn't have happened. So, everything. On that note, we'll wrap it up, I think. Graham Hunter, thank you very much for being the first guest on the ABZ Football Podcast. Stand free. Up the dandies. Thanks again to Graham Hunter for giving his time to appear on the very first episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. If you want to keep up to date with what Graham's up to, you can follow him on Twitter. The handle's at Bumper Graham. And his big interview series continues on Spotify and all of your usual podcast haunts. We would absolutely recommend you check them out if you've got any sort of interest in football whatsoever. And that wraps up the very first episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow, click the notification button, put the bells and whistles on your podcast player of choice to be notified when the next podcast drops. Join us next week where we'll be taking a look back at how the first tie against BK Hecken has gone. And we'll be joined by the one and only Adel Stavrum. Thanks for listening. Stand free. Stand free.